Binge Mode Star Wars is presented by State Farm. State Farm Asians know that sometimes life throws everything at you at once. Like a fender bender. When you're already late. When it comes to auto and home insurance, State Farm agents are there for you. Talk to one of 19,000 State Farm agents via text. Hmm. Over the phone. Sure. In person. Okay. Or using the State Farm app. Ooh. Find one today on statefarm.com. Yes, yes, we are. Uh, affirmative. That's an impounded Imperial ship. What's your call sign, pilot? Um, we have to go. It, it's, um... Say something. Come on. Which one contains adult content? Adult content? What about spoilers? Well, yes, those two. And now, binge mode. Rogue One. Pulling away. Pulling away. What chance do we have? What chance do we have? The question is what choice? Run, hide, plead for mercy, scatter your forces. You give way to an enemy this evil with this much power and you condemn the galaxy to an eternity of submission. The time to fight is now. Yes. Every moment you waste is another step closer to the ashes of Jeddah. What is she proposing? Just let the girl speak. Send your best troops to Scarif. Send the rebel fleet if you have to. You need to capture the Death Star plans if there's any hope of destroying it. You're asking us to invade an Imperial installation based on nothing but hope. Rebellions are built on hope. Welcome to Binge Mode Star Wars, proudly a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Mallory Rubin, editor-in-chief of TheRinger.com. What a great website. Fantastic. Joining me today, uh-huh. now that he's finished directing Borg Gullet to read his enemy's thoughts, <laughs> it's Ringer Senior Creative, your Jedi Master, Jason Concepcion. Bell! Lies! <laughs> Deception! Borg Gullet will know the truth! <laughs> And so will those who listen to Binge Road Star Wars, where we're exploring the Skywalker saga films and the anthology films and numerous other facets of a galaxy far, far away from character studies on iconic Star Wars archetypes to discussions of the Mandalorian to chats about the comics and merch and iconography and more. All leading up to the release of Star Wars Episode Nine: The Rise of Skywalker on December 20th. Please make the journey to Jeddah City with us. R.I.P. Jeddah City. Tough. Maybe don't join us there, actually. Yeah, not much there right now. In spirit. Join us there in spirit. <laughs> By subscribing to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. And please rate and review us. Yeah. Give us those five-star ratings or you'll have to summon Vader from his back to tank on Mustafar. Lord Vader, binge mode has arrived. <laughs> Let me tell you, one thing Vader does not like that annoys him is when he has to fucking get drained out of the back to tank too early. <laughs> Hates it. They hated it. <laughs> they hated everything. They hated Vader. They, 
Please also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore and join our Facebook group, <laughs> which is just for binge mode fans, and which is an excellent place to share your favorite quotes from meme lord Saul Guerrero. A legend. I love a militant freedom fighter. <laughs> Freed his people on Onderon and then fought the good fight for many and many decades, costing him his legs, most of his chest, and his ability to live without some kind of drug pumped into his lungs via a mask. Sounds like he's like a month and a half into binge mode. <laughs> and please head to theringer.com slash shop to check out our binge mode merch. Comfy for mm. scaling the cliffs of Edu. Indeed. Last time, we booted up the comm link for our third Star Wars Ask the Underscore. And today, mm. we're diving deep. 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 <laughs> Deception! Guys! <laughs> Borgullet will know how deep. Borgullet! <laughs> Into 2016's Rogue One, a Star Wars story. <laughs> As always, spoiler warning, we will be going deep on details from this film and the entire Star Wars saga to date, taking official canon and legends, hashtag not canon, into account. So do whatever you must to transmit the schematics because it's time to head to Scarif. Mal? Yeah? I'm standing by as you requested. Although there's a problem on the horizon. There's no horizon! Oh no. It's the Death Star! And also plot points. So let's offer up a brief refresher on what actually happens in Rogue One by heading to a podcast studio far, far away and queuing up the opening crawl! Years before the Battle of Yavin, an Imperial shuttle arrives on a desolate planet. Alarming, Galen Erso, his wife, Lyra, which I need to remember is pronounced that way and is not Lyra, the protagonist of His Dark Materials, and their young daughter, Jin. <laughs> Galen, a gifted scientist, has come to this world to hide from the Empire. Now, Orson Krennic, Krennic! the <laughs> Ben Mendelsohn, Krennic! and his cadre of death troopers, personal bodyguards, are here to get Galen to continue his work on a secret project, the Death Star. As Krennic's troopers search the farmstead, Lyra, mm -hmm. previously hiding per Galen's orders, runs up and pulls a blaster. In the end, Lyra is killed. Krennic, lightly wounded. Give us some... No! For Lyra. Galen is taken away, and Jin runs to a bunker, where she's eventually found by freedom fighter and family friend. Saw Guerrero. Lies. Lies! Deception! Raises her in a life of militant resistance. We catch up with her 13 years later in an Imperial prison cell. On Obani, she's rescued by rebel fighters, including the reprogrammed Imperial droid K2SO. What a riot. He's a, what a wonderful human being he is. Good for a laugh. Leadership is worried because rebel spy Cassian Andor has learned of an Imperial defector with important information about the existence of a planet-killing weapon. They task Jin with making contact with Saw Gerrera so they can debrief the pilot. But there's an even more secret part of the mission. Oh, no. Galen is too dangerous to be taken prisoner. Cassian is tasked with assassinating him on sight. Oh, my goodness. In orbit around the Death Star, Krennic meets with Grand Moff Tarkin. To just have a little check-in, little work chat. How's it going? About the Death Star project. <laughs> Tarkin knows about Pilot Bodhi's defection, 
And in order to contain the pilot's secret and test the weapon's efficacy, Tarkin suggests a trial. Cassian, Jin, and K2SO arrive in Jeddah City, a place holy to Jedi. After a firefight with stormtroopers, the rebels, plus Chirrut and Baze, two former guardians of the wills and protectors of the Jedi Temple, are taken to see Saw. Jin and Saw are reunited. Years of guerrilla warfare have left Saw paranoid, afraid that everything is a trap, even someone he used to know. But he shows Jin Bodhi's message, which is from her father, who says that he loves her and never forgot her or Lyra. And crucially, Though a prisoner seemingly toiling away for the Empire, he has built a vulnerability into the Death Star's reactor module, Uh thereby strengthening years of cannon. (laughs) One capable of destroying the entire base. All that's needed to locate the kill spot is the Death Star's blueprints, which are held in the Imperial Archive on Scarif. And just then, the Death Star fires on Jedha City. Awful. Looks cool, though. It looks incredibly cool. (laughs) K2SO spirits the crew off the dying planet. Guerrera, his fight over, he decides? It's just like, I'm good now. (laughs) Very weird. Shades of Val from Solo? (laughs) Yes. Like, is the the fight's not- Did you have to stay? The fight's not over, Saw. Everyone else is leaving. Yeah, everybody else is out. Literally everyone else. There's much left to do, Saw. (laughs) But he chooses to stay. His last words are to implore Jin to save the rebellion. Save the dream. Lies. Zip Jin! Ice, give us some breathy. Yes. No. Asthmatic. Nose. The weirdest character in this movie. <laughs> yeah. Boggle it. <laughs> Rebel leadership gets word of Jeddah's destruction, confirming their worst fears. General Draven. Tells Cassian to continue as planned. Head to Edo and kill Galen. With Galen's current whereabouts confirmed and communication to Cassian's crew cut off, rebel leaders send a squadron of X-Wings to bomb the refinery on Edo. Krennic, as luck would have it, arrives on Edo as well to confront Galen about the security breach. The refinery's engineers, including Galen, meet him on the landing pad. Krennic makes an announcement. Someone has betrayed the Empire. And that person should step forward. To save his colleagues from execution, Galen takes responsibility. Meanwhile, Cassian looks on, waiting for a clear shot, but he loses his nerve. Krennic, not the best guy. Bad guy. Has all the engineers gunned down. Hot take, bad guy. (laughs) Or said Krennic. Toughing. Just then, Jin sneaks to the edge of the landing pad intent on rescuing her father, and Cassian, seeing her, tries to have the X-Wing attack called off, but it's too late. The rebel pilots batter the landing pad, and Galen is mortally wounded. He dies in Jin's arms. Very tender moment. Give us some no's for Galen. Rebels, meanwhile, escape in a stolen and as yet unnamed Imperial shuttle. On Mustafar. Oh, this is great. Krennic gets an audience with the one and only Darth Vader. The homie Darth. Who tells Krennic that Galen's security breach must be contained and cuts off Krennic's response with a quick little force choke me, daddy. (laughs) He's not your father, Orson, but he is your zaddy. Krennic decides to travel to Scarif to survey all of Galen's past communications. Yeah, good idea, dude. Amazing when the, the guard is like, all of them? Yes! 
All of them. Also, why was that not your first stop? Sloppy. Sloppy stuff in the Empire, always. On Yavin. Similarly, the Rebel Alliance is in disarray. A, a total mess. <laughs> Everyone's a fucking mess. Democracy is messy, folks. <laughs> Don't tell Anakin. He'll just want to go right to tyranny. Some rebel leaders want to surrender. Some want to flee. Some believe it's all a ruse to lure the rebels into a decisive battle that they, of course, think they'll lose. Jin, she's got a pitch. Let's fight and let's do it now. Send the best fighters to Scarif, acquire the Death Star plants at any cost before it's too late for the rest of the galaxy. The Council, mirroring the stasis of the late Republican Senate, can't make a decision. But Jin's message has been heard. A hardcore group of Alliance fighters are ready to act. Along with Cassian, they volunteer to go to Scarif without backup and without any orders to do so in order to try and steal the plans. Small force boards the Imperial shuttle, which Bodhi names Rogue One. Yes. And they make for Scarif. Meanwhile, Mon Mothma and Bail Organa. Jimmy Smith's just cashing the check. Fucking cashing the check. Cashing that, drop that bag. Amazing. Jimmy Smith's waiting hands. (laughs) Just incredible stuff. Collecting the Galactic Empire credits. It's working. They agree that, hey, you know, yeah, war is coming. It's called Star Wars, after all. (laughs) Not Star Peace. (laughs) Bale agrees to contact that old Jedi pal of his. I wonder, do you think they mean? I think they mean old. Ben could be old Ben Kenobi. <laughs> old, by the way, a little mean. It hasn't been that long. The messenger must be someone that Obi-Wan trusts. We know, of course, this means Bale's daughter, the princess, Leia Organa. In actuality, Luke's would-be fuck made an actual sister. Hello. Leia Skywalker. Jin and the rebels make it through the planetary shield gate and land at the Imperial Archive. Jin, Cassian, and K2, disguised as Imperial troops, will find the plans, while the others will create a diversion and keep the defenders off balance. After K2 ascertains the location of the file vault, Cassian gives the signal and the rebel fighters strike. From the control room, Krennic scrambles the garrison. Scramble the garrison! (laughs) He loves to yell. You wouldn't need to yell if you had been prepared. That's all I'm saying, (laughs) Orson Krennic. Good note. A desperate fight begins. Word of the incursion reaches Grand Moff Tarkin. When he realizes that Krennic and the Death Star plans are on the planet, he sees an opportunity to take out that pesky colleague of his, a rival, and ensure the operational security of the superweapon. He orders the Death Star to make the jump to Scarif. Word of the fight also reaches Yavin. Rebel leaders mobilize the fleet and in a thrilling, chaotic rush with almost no information about what they're Mm -hmm. facing, make for Scarif. They arrive just in time. A squadron of small ships make it through the gate just before it closes. This whole sequence is in- incredible. It's thrilling. Oh my God. I love this movie. It's great. What a great movie. Meanwhile, Cassian and Jin make their way up to the Death Star file, and with the gate closed, they'll need to transmit a message to the rebel fleet telling them to take down the gate, prepare to receive the file, which they'll send via the communication console at the top of the archive tower. This is, the movie is wonderful. It's also in many ways a protracted advertisement for DirecTV. It's like you need a strong satellite if you want to consume your content. <laughs> Kay locates the file titled Stardust. Mm. Stardust. Galen's nickname for Jin. 
And the very power, sweet. Very sweet. Also extremely hackable. Like, it's definitely the Star Wars Galactic Civil War equivalent of your password being password. Right. Your password being password or like the street you grew up on or your your first, wife's birthday. Your wife's birthday <laughs> your or pet's your name. pet's name. <laughs> when the power is cut, she and Cassian have to climb up the stack to retrieve the file. To cover them, K2SO holds off waves uh, of stormtroopers before man. finally falling under a hail of blaster Incredible. fire. No! No! Fuck no! For K2SO! I will not stand for it! Absolutely not! Credic! <laughs> Realizing that the archive is being accessed, uh, Credic! Yeah, quick on the uptake as always. Credic! <laughs> Like, why might they be there? I wonder. Why Krennic? might they be there? Why Krennic? is a small force of, of <laughs> rebels attacking a heavily guarded <laughs> imperial outpost? Why? What could they want, Krennic? <laughs> so Krennic heads there with his bodyguards. A shootout ensues, and Cassian is hit. Man. Jin climbs to the top of the tower alone. On the beach, the last of the rebel soldiers are pinned down. This part. It gets me choked up. This is going to be, I think, my first Star Wars tears. Gets me, yeah. gets me choked up. This really hits. Chirrut puts his trust in the Force, walks boldly through a absolute blizzard of fire to the master switch that they need to activate. And he turns it on, allowing Bodhi to broadcast to the fleet. Seconds later, Chirrut is hit. And he dies in Baze's arms. No! no! Give us those no's. For Chirrut. Above the planet, the Mon Calamari Admiral Radis. Mm, it's good. It looks good. Delicious. Uses a disabled Star Destroyer <laughs> as a battering ram to penetrate the shield gate. Moments later, Bodhi is killed. Baze goes out in a blaze of glory. No! No! For Bodhi and Baze! Are you noticing that everyone's dying? This is why, honestly, we'll get into this, we but this is why this. I love this movie. It's the great. sacrifice. It's great. Jin, still miraculously alive for now, makes it to the top of the tower. Krennic finds her, prepares to shoot her, but he needs to stop for a chat. Classic bad guy move here. Don't just shoot. <laughs> and honestly, ask for exposition. Tracks with what we know about Krennic. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, God. Just then, Cassian still somehow alive. This is one of the only moments in the movie where it's like, how is he alive? There's, there's no way he should be alive. Shoots Krennic. What's the opposite of a no? That's what we want for Krennic. Give us the sound of somebody asking questions too late. Maybe perhaps the sound of Yoda meditating on it Meditate for far it. too long. <laughs> the file and the Death Star plans are beamed up to the fleet just as the Imperial weapon emerges from hyperspace. Tarkin orders the weapon fired on Scarif. Radis, with plans in hand, has the fleet jump to light speed. But before his ship, the profundity can escape. It's disabled and boarded by Vader himself. Hell yeah. <laughs> Incredible sequence. Truly thrilling. Jin and Cassian walk out to the beach, arm in arm, as the mushroom cloud from the Death Star inches toward them. They meet their end. No! 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 For Jin and Cassian. Heroes! On the profundity, it's a race against time as the crew transfers the Death Star plans hand-to-hand. -hand amazing stuff. As Darth Vader, hot on their heels, slices through the crew members with 
eats. Just a phenomenal part in the movie. It's a close run thing, but Darth is too late. The lifeboat and Princess Leia gets away. On to episode four. Woo! Jason? Yeah! If we can make it to the podcast studio, Uh we'll take the next chance. Mm -hmm. And the next. On and on until we pod where the chances are spent. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. (laughs) Cheerful. (laughs) So let's search our feelings and use the force. The defining theme of this episode is the audacity of hope. Let's start off in a big picture sense. I love it. Talking about the movie, when it entered our lives, when it entered the Star Wars canon. What a fun film. We love it. The first Star Wars anthology movie. Yes. So it really ushered in this new era in Star Wars storytelling. In the primary cinematic canon, debuted in December 2016. So this obviously came before Solo. Halcyon halcyon days. (laughs) Solo came and things changed. But back in this moment in time, it was quite a thing. Box office, 532 million domestically. 1.06 billion with a B, billion worldwide. That is incredible. People were fucking hyped for this. That's the biggest domestic movie of 2016. We were just little babies in 2016. <laughs> I, know, I know. Number two movie worldwide that year behind just Captain America, Civil War. Great movie. Both. But it wasn't all smooth sailing. That's right. As you are well aware of, uh-huh. certainly from listening to this podcast and, and just paying attention to the Star Wars franchise on your own, It's not easy to launch Star Wars movies, and there were some troubles from the jump. Tony Gilroy was swapped for director Gareth Edwards after uh, some kind of unspecified chaos with the production. Gareth Edwards had apparently created a movie that Kathleen Kennedy and the Lucasfilm execs were not quite happy with. And so Gilroy, who was a veteran hand, was brought in. And some of that is evident throughout the film as certainly Jin's arc feels like it was manipulated in ways to make her more of a believer in what was going on. Mm-hmm. There's a bunch of stuff in the trailer that doesn't make it into the final yes. film. That which in and of itself is maybe not a cause to believe that there are other things going on, but with all the other stories, yes, we understand that there were issues. This is a movie that combined tons of anticipation and hype with a lot of skepticism. Yes. Grand Moff Tarkin, for Mm -hmm. one, played by Peter Cushing. Yeah, very emblematic. Is in this movie. And of course, Peter Cushing has been deceased for a number of years. Princess Leia would appear in this movie in new scenes. And of course, Carrie Fisher has aged in the 40 years since the events of The New Hope. Bridging the future in the past of Star Wars and what they represent is not easy. So they realized early on that they needed to have Tarkin in this movie because mm-hmm. he was so central to the Death Star operation at the time that the events were happening. But instead of merely casting a lookalike, as they would do with Mon Mothma later, mm-hmm. more about that later— they used a combination of live action and digital effects. Actor Guy Henry, best known to binge mode listeners as Pious Thickness, a.k.a. <laughs> the Thickness from the two <laughs> Deadly Allos movies, is similar in height and build to Cushing, the actor who played Tarkin in A New Hope, who died in 1994. And he gave the physical performance while wearing motion capture tech on his head so they could essentially reskin him as Peter Cushing from 1977. A similar process occurred with the de-aged Carrie Fisher in the final scene. A flesh and blood actress, Ingvila Dila, 
stood in as Leia in the shot from behind, but for the reverse angle, which shows Leia's face, the digital team recreated her face, hair, and costume to look like footage from A New Hope. Some criticized the actual look of these two figures, which seemed to descend at some points into uncanny valley territory. Moreover, it raises ethical concerns about postmortem rights in the digital age. John Knoll, the chief creative officer at ILM and a visual effects supervisor on Rogue One, told the New York Times that he didn't anticipate this kind of process becoming mainstream uh-huh. to create new versions of many dead actors and actresses. Quote, this was done for very solid and defendable reasons. This is a character that is very important to telling this kind of story. It is extremely labor-intensive and expensive to do. I don't imagine anybody engaging in this kind of thing in a casual manner. Fast forward to today. Yeah. Certainly a related issue, but not a Star Wars note. James Dean, who died 64 years ago, has been cast as the second lead. (laughs) The second lead in the upcoming film Finding Jack. And this has caused a backlash around Hollywood and on social media. Anton Ernst, the film's director, has been surprised at the response, noting that Carrie Fisher's posthumous appearances in the Star Wars franchise did not merit similar criticism. Quote, I think the line should be, you must always honor the deceased's wishes and try to act in a way that's honorable and full of dignity, he told The Hollywood Reporter. James Dean, of course, could not have consented to the technology that would potentially reanimate him in the movies, seeing as he died 64 years ago. What else was different about this movie? Well, quite a bit. That is one of the things that is inherent in the very proposition of it. It simultaneously has to slide right into its place in the Star Wars universe and canon and stand out on its own and account for all of the passage in time it's taking place and it's filmed in the present day and taking place well in the past. One of the things that really stood out to fans is the absence of a crawl. There was one in an initial draft, but eventually they decided to cut it to make this the first movie without an opening crawl. Kathleen Kennedy told Time Magazine, quote, the crawl and some of those elements live so specifically within the saga films that we are having a lot of discussion about what will define the standalone Star Wars story separate and apart from the saga films. So again, this is the question that defined not only so much of the production and creation, but so much of the reception. What's familiar? What's unique? When is that good? When is that bad? And when it feels bad, when is it really bad? And when is it actually just that it's something that questions our sense of comfort and routine? So this gets into the biggest question about the film, which is, can you tell a standalone story of substance and consequence and emotional heft and resonance and humor and everything else, action, all of it, if it's connected to something that people already feel so strongly about but this has a finite mm. beginning and end point. So people started asking this question yes. well before the movie came out. They started asking it when the poster came out, when the trailers came out, because what did the marketing hinge on completely justifiably? The Death Star. Death Star imagery. That poster with the Death Star hulking, looming above this beautiful beach-like planet that you hadn't recognized, this contrast of the known and the familiar with the new and the unknown. The brilliance of taking something that is simultaneously absolutely elemental to Star Wars, the Death Star, but also something that people kind of mock. How could this fearsome superweapon just go like that? And not only that, but time and time again, how do they keep making the same mistake with the same 
vulnerability and making that question a joke, the central tension of this highly tense movie is kind of brilliant. This is why, listen, we've said that Soul is better than you remember, but I think if there's kind of essential reason why Rogue One is, you know, in our estimation, so much better than Solo is it has a reason to exist. It answers this question. Solo was kind of like, hey, want to know more about Han Solo? Like that, very amorphous, like this movie, Rogue One, fills a specific role within the canon. Yes. Just to stick with that comp, Han Solo's backstory is something that you want to know about because you care about Han. It's something that you can access in numerous different ways in the expansive, quite expansive legends canon around his character. There are ways of accessing this information, but for the primary movie canon, Han Solo is kind of the one thing that you always just fully understand, right? He's cool. I get the vibe. I want more of it. I want as much of it as I can get. How they were able to get those Death Star plans and why the Death Star had that vulnerability in the first place, and also just more about how the rebellion sprung into existence, it is in many ways the foundation on which the entire saga rests. And so providing buttresses after the construction of the entire thing, it's almost like the scaffolding came in to hold it into place after the fact. It's structurally quite masterful. And then what else is wrapped up in that? This very unique proposition of asking people to invest in a movie where almost everyone dies and not only asking that, but pulling it off. Yeah. Now, you don't know when you sit down to watch Rogue One definitively that every single person who you come to grow attached to or droid or whatever dies. You don't know that for sure. But rationally, as someone who is probably seeing this movie because you've seen all of the other Star Wars movies, you know when you meet Jin. You know when you meet Cassian, you know when you see K2, that they're not in A New Hope. You haven't seen them. They're not in Empire. Not even mentioned. They're not in Jedi. They're not around. That this is going to be it for them. And that hangs over the entire film. And while it is very sad, while it is in many ways like existentially despair-inducing, there's something kind of thrilling about it. I agree. Star Wars can feel so vast. Yeah. It can feel so hard to wrap your arms around it. And there's something about this story choice that is, like, immersive but contained. To paraphrase our good friend Chris Ryan uh, when talking about about Game of Thrones, what he wants from a story is, yes, he wants his favorite characters to have uh, wonderful, fulfilling, and long lives. But he also wants the story to, quote, fuck him up. Fuck him up. And that's what Rogue One does. It fucks you up. Absolutely. And the other thing that does, again, with the acknowledgement that the— box office returns for Solo at least temporarily changed this, it unlocked what the future of Star Wars storytelling could be by saying that not everything has to be the primary Skywalker saga, that you could do these anthology films. And then what did the anthology films unlock? They unlock further anthology-driven storytelling, and now we're in the Disney Plus era. Cassian is going to get his own television show. We're going to keep returning to these characters and keep returning to the moments in Star Wars storytelling where you have that question in your mind, how did that happen? How did those people get there? And eventually, over time, you're going to be able to find out. And one of the incredible things about Rogue One is that you get to find out the answer to this particular question with a female lead. Mm -hmm. 2016 is a year after The Force Awakens. So we have two primary massive Star Wars blockbusters, Rey 
and Jin, two female leads. This meant so much to so many people, and it was yes. an incredible thing. And we have regrettably not moved beyond the moment in time where this should just be completely normal and not something we even need to talk about. You know, you look at the response to The Last Jedi, and while various, various things in that movie upset people, not us, we love that movie, yeah. one of them certainly still remained the fact that it was primarily a movie about Rey, which not everybody wants, and this is primarily a movie about Jin, which not everybody wants, but it's awesome. Let's talk about the response. Yes. 84% on Rotten Tomatoes from the critics. Pretty good. 86% from fans, a nice balance there. And um, of course, Rotten Tomatoes, we should always say, is not the end-all be-all, but I think it's an important metric nonetheless. Not everyone was a fan or every part perfect. People thought some of the tech was distracting. The character backstory is not well sketched out. The underdog story is somewhat cliched. A.O. Scott from the New York Times, quote, Millions of people will sit through this thoroughly mediocre movie and convince themselves that it was perfectly delightful. How dare you, Ayo? I mean, it is perfectly delightful. And it's a wonderful movie. I was really I was will. really with Ayo Scott when he wrote so hard for Revenge of the Sith, but now I'm I'm drifting away again. Yeah. I, I <laughs> we will elucidate our thoughts behind this movie in granular detail shortly. <laughs> Mostly positive reviews, however. Matt Zoller Sites writing for Ebert's website, quote. There are creative decisions so ill-conceived they take you out of the story, but somehow these aren't enough to sink the movie. Yeah. I agree with that, yep. which manages to succeed as both super nerdy fan service and the first entry since the 1977 original that will satisfy people who have never seen a Star Wars film. Agreed. Like, there are numerous plot points of this movie where it's like, go from point A to point B to find a switch. Literally mm -hmm. just, and throw it. Yeah. And honestly, it's fine. Mm -hmm. I was like, yeah, great. They have to do something and that's the thing they have to do because like the thing that propels the movie forward dramatically is this terrible sacrifice that's that right. all these people are making that's to right. do these things. What do you think of that, of the use of the fan service label for this film? I mean, I disagree with it. I, You know what? I'm very like anti the entire Concept. The entire concept. Yeah. Because to me, it, it is deployed specifically to kind of like delegitimize story choices mm -hmm. that in many cases have a are perfectly fair story choices. Right. I don't see this as listen, if you're going to create work within IP and not do fan service, like what are we doing here? Of course you're fleshing out a brand that people are familiar with. So in a certain sense of course you want people's wishes to be in a certain uh, mm -hmm. level realized, but I I just disagree with the moniker fan service. Yeah, I feel similarly, as you know. And I think that even in a moment in pop culture consumption and criticism where people insist on wielding the term with something resembling regularity, given how much of the storytelling is just generated by these IP machines that people are either obsessed with or allergic to and very rarely anything in between, just don't think it fits in this case. Right. I, like, yeah. Star Wars fan service is revealing in Rise of Skywalker that Han Solo had clones made on Kamino and young Han comes back out and can like strut around naked and fuck everyone in sight. And also it's a VR movie. So you're one of the people who gets to Hello, fuck him. Very specific, like, very specific. <laughs> fans that that before. <laughs> <laughs> not that I've thought about right. it before. And then, he looks at, and then he looks at the screen and says, Mallory, I love you. And I say, I know. <laughs> about that before. But again, this just feels like actual essential stitching together of a prominent scene. Right. A prominent I, scene. It's a great point. And again, I think that the main, listen, if there is a 
line between fan service and storytelling within an IP universe. I think it's, does the story exist for a reason? And right. the answer as is we yes. just said, Rogue One absolutely does. It answers a question that has been lingering out there for decades. Um, Mara Reinstein for Us Weekly, quote, the fraught big moments, capital B, capital mm-hmm. M, <laughs> are as emotionally resonant as they are surprising. There's That's no right. time for cutesy inside jokes when the future of the galaxy is at stake and the clock is ticking. That's why in the grand scheme of the Star Wars universe, episode 3.5, will go down as a chief reason why fanatics hold the franchise so close to their hearts. That's a good summation, though there is time for cutesy inside jokes. I mean, we still we still, they still get, happen. We still get all that. I have a bad feeling about this, etc. Yes, you still see Panda <laughs> Baba and the good doctor oh, uh, man. on the streets. Can't streets. miss the ball section. Yeah. Sean Fennessy. Hey, I know him. Writing for the ringer.com, a great, great website. website. Quote, the most violent and unrelenting Star Wars action ever. The jokes are good. The fights are thrilling, and there's a big goosebump-rending moment in the final minutes. Incredible. Okay, so let's talk about the goosebump moments. Let's talk about the movie itself. Let's get into our theme, hope. Mm -hmm. Not only the hope that people who make Star Wars had for what the future of Star Wars could be, not only the hope that fans carried for what an anthology film and expanded storytelling could mean, but the hope that the characters feel. Let's start with Jin, Galen, Cassian, the Rebels. We open. In really stunning fashion, and it is a stunning movie. Gorgeous. I think it looks beautiful. And not just Scarif, which, of course, like, if you're watching that on the big screen or at home on your 4K, I mean, the crystalline ocean is popping, but all of it is just visually mesmerizing. And we, right away, are just sucked fully into what's playing out in front of us. We scoot past the rings of Lamu, the outer rim planet on which the Urso family resides. And this is six years after Palpatine's empire rose. And the vegetation is lush, but the population is quite sparse. This is a place where you go to hide. This is a place where you go to escape. But escaping doesn't always mean giving up. That's a crucial, crucial idea in this film and across Star Wars. Sometimes it means finding new hope, finding something else to latch onto. And Galen brought his family here to start a new life, away from Krennic, away from the empire, away from oppression. Krennic found him. The Imperial shuttle arrives, and we see that the Urso family's hope has always looked and felt something like air inside of a balloon. It's ripe and full, but it's always subject to the whims of time and external forces, something waiting there to drain it. It's happened, Lyra says, when she calls Saw. He's come for us. They've been waiting for this. But they have a plan. Life isn't easy in the Galactic Empire. Sometimes getting by means slipping into the shadows, and sometimes it means running head on into the storm. Sometimes it is both. Remember, Galen tells Jin, whatever I do, I do it to protect you, laying the groundwork for the work that he knows he's about to do. Part of what makes Rogue One such a remarkable Star Wars movie is that it reminds us that life is complex. Mm -hmm. Actions don't always speak to true intentions. Quote, Say you understand, he tells Jin before telling her he loves her and calling her stardust. She says that she does. And over the course of the film, we really come to see what that understanding means. Not only being able to appreciate that her father was fighting for her and for good and for victory, despite the very ominous appearances Uh and reality of his work. You're wearing the uniform. You're building their machine. Yeah. But learning the value of staying the course even when all hope seems lost. When Lyra sends Jin to her prearranged hiding place, she gives her a kyber crystal pendant and says, trust the force. 
We're going to talk more about Kyber in today's Jedi Temple, so please stay tuned for that. A fascinating one. Kyber! <laughs> <laughs> Not even a crystal! <laughs> oh, great stuff. But Kyber is very present, very present in this film in numerous respects. It's associated with greed and the pursuit of strength on the Empire side and also with mystery, mysticism, faith on the Jedi's part. The necklace's inscription written in Arbesh matches Lyra's words to Jin: trust in the Force. And as we'll talk about a bit more later when we get to Chirrut, the presentation of the Force in this film is really a testament to unwavering faith in the face of daily, sometimes hourly, in the minute, challenges to that conviction. Order 66 was executed six years ago. Yoda is on Dagobah. Obi-Wan is in hiding, kicking it as Ben Kenobi. Luke has not yet found out who he is and risen. The Jedi Order is, at this point in the story, for most beings in the galaxy and for most intents and purposes, dead, gone. But the Force is bigger than any person, any body. The Force is an idea. It's a source of strength and purpose for those who enlist its name. Galen faces Krennic and lies with easy desperation. Yes. He's alone, he says, farming, looking for a peaceful life. Krennic, of course, does not believe it. He's after something, too. We invest in our heroes in every story. Yep. We root for the rebellion and the resistance, but Imperial commanders, they buy sneakers, too, folks. They do. Hope isn't a zero-sum game, but it can feel that way sometimes. If your enemy's gaining... How can you sustain confidence that you might be able to lash back game two? Quote, the work has stalled, Krennic tells Galen. I need you to come back. The premise of Rogue One hinges on filling multiple crucial gaps in our Star Wars knowledge. Namely, of course, how did the Death Star plans get into Leia's possession and to the Rebel Alliance in the first place in A New Hope? But also, how was a project like the Death Star Mm -hmm. constructed And why was this vulnerability there? Mm -hmm. In the primary cinematic canon, our original knowledge came from A New Hope and Tarkin and Vader and the Emperor. Our enhanced knowledge came from the prequels and the reveal that under Krennic's involvement in Galen's essential position as a scientist needed to complete construction of this project is new. And also the math. How, if we see the shell of the Death Star under construction at the end of Revenge of the Sith, could it take until A New Hope to use in force, especially given the ensuing speed with which the Empire will build Death Star 2, which it will unleash in Return of the Jedi. This has always bothered me. Yeah. We see it here. (laughs) They hit a wall. They needed someone to push them over the edge. For the Empire, hope is greed, a lust for power. Hope is the need to continue to exploit and gain and bend others to your will. Hope is corrupted as malign ambition, as it was with Palpatine and Anakin, to look like a path to more, more knowledge, more power, more strength, no matter the cost, and often because of a cost. Yes. You're confusing peace with terror, Galen tells Krennic, when the latter laments how close Mm. they were to just finishing this thing ages ago, restoring prosperity to the galaxy. We can see Galen's courage quite clearly in this moment. That may not be a hard truth to recognize, but it's a hard truth to speak aloud to the person seeking to bring it about. And Lyra has that courage, too. She charges out of hiding to defend Galen as Jin watches. She's nestled, hiding in the grass. Lyra can't abide a life as a glorified hostage, wrapped in Krennic's self-serving propaganda about being heroes of the Empire. They've lived that life already. They can't do it again. She pulls her blaster and fires at him, knowing with certainty what is coming her way from the hyper-elite stealth mission death troopers, they look fucking dope, ringed around her. But also, 
knowing just as fiercely that she has to at least try that the real death we can tell in our mere moments with her would be giving up without a fight. You will never win, she shouts as she fires, wounding Krennic, but suffering a mortal wound in turn. And Jin flees, having just witnessed her mother's murder, her father's capture. And her circumstances are a manifestation of this eternal human quandary. And this movie surfaces a lot of eternal human quandaries. How can you cling to the last shred of possibility when the darkness crashes in on you and the symbolism literalizes in this sequence with Jin? She runs into the hatch that her family had predetermined she'd hide in should events unfold in such a fashion. And as she waits for Saw Gerrera to find her, down at the bottom of this well, this tunnel, the whole force of doubt pressing down on her, the light in her hands starts to flicker out. But you just need that one lingering glimmer, Mm -hmm. even when all seems lost. My child, Saw says as he opens the hatch, come, come, we have a long ride ahead of us. And indeed they do. Indeed, we always will. That's part of what it means to be alive. That's the nature of struggle and drive and life itself. We've mentioned this quote before in other podcasts, but we like to return to it because it feels like it sums up this idea so well. In the film First Reformed, Reverend Toller says, quote, wisdom is holding two contradictory truths in our minds simultaneously, hope and despair. Holding these two ideas in our head is life itself. The contradiction inherent in everyday life. You look around and you see all the people and things standing in your way and you feel the sorrow in your heart, but you can only bring yourself to look at that stuff and think about it and feel it in the first place because there's something in your soul pushing you to, pushing you forward, asking you to do better and try harder. And that something is hope. The other figure who we explore in our theme in this film is Cassian, soon entwined with Jin, but initially a stranger to her. Yes. We meet Cassian 13 years after Jin's childhood escape at the Ring of Kefrin, a mining colony turned trading outpost that looks fit for a season of The Expanse. It really does. Mm-hmm. It's dark and dank where transactions are the currency of the day. To Cassian, we see immediately he lives for information. That's his life's blood. Cassian is a rebel intelligence officer, and the man he's meeting, Tivik, has the intel he needs about Bodhi's defection, his news of a kyber crystal-powered superweapon. Quote, a planet killer, Tivik shouts in fretful terror. That's what he called it. The pilot, he says, was sent by Galen Erso, an old friend of Saw's. Tivik is Cassian's informant, but he's so afraid he can barely even speak these words, as Galen said to Krennic earlier. The Empire's real impact was terror. And the ensuing decade and a half have only solidified that fact. When stormtroopers approach, they ask for Scandox. The Empire's soldiers accost civilians on the street for ID. The real-world corollaries for this are obvious and hideous. This is oppression, tyranny, terror, control. And it makes the air noxious, choking out hope like toxins do a weed. But hope is like the stubborn sprout that blooms amid the fog, leaking oxygen back into the atmosphere, allowing others to breathe. And And it's the thing to understand about the Death Star is the Emperor needs it. Mm-hmm. There's only so many stormtroopers to go around. The Senate doesn't really exist as a governing body anymore. It's just like a puppet body. How to keep these vast number of systems under the yoke? Fear. And he needs that fear. He needs that super weapon to make that happen. Yeah, we see throughout the film how tenuous the grasp on controlling the Senate is. The galaxy is massive, vast. It's hard to control everyone. It's a lot easier to just blast them out of the way. Fittingly, Cassian kills the troopers without thought. It is 
self-preservation as much as an attack on the enemy, but to Tivik, it is a death sentence. He can't climb out because of his arm. And Cassian comforts him, and for a very brief moment, you think it's going to be okay, and then he shoots him in the back. Yeah. And what are we supposed to think here? We just met Cassian. We don't know him yet. Mm -hmm. We weren't with him when he grew up on Fest. We don't yet know how he came to join the Separatist cause and fight against the Republic's rising military threat during the Clone Wars. We haven't heard any of his fun aliases. We haven't heard him go by the codename Fulcrum. We just know that he shot a man who came here to help him and is supposed to be on his side. Why did he do that? And what are we supposed to make of it? It is a highly effective narrative choice. Because in the short term, as the Galen assassination plan unfolds, it makes us think that Cassian's capable of doing that, to Mm -hmm. doubt his character and moral compass. But ultimately, ultimately what it does is reinforce that Cassian is willing to do whatever is necessary to persevere, to see his cause through. And sometimes that's ugly. Sometimes it's wrong. But he killed Tivik here because he knew that Tivik would be captured and tortured for information and that it would jeopardize their quest. He spared Tivik that pain, but he also spared himself and his alliance that compromise. And it's vicious and it's purposeful, and it speaks to a hard truth about war. Remember what Dario said to Danny back in Marine? Great pillow talk for these two. All rulers are either butchers or meat. And we would like to believe, we need to believe that there's room for nuance there, or that that doesn't apply to the people we want to root for. The choice to fight in a different, nobler way is possible. But sometimes it doesn't feel like it is. This movie reminds me a lot of, you know, in a lot of ways, it's kind of like the pop version of a film that I really love called Army of Shadows, French film by Jean-Pierre Melville about the French resistance during World War II and the kind of ruthless methods that they had to employ in order to keep doing what they were doing. There's a scene where they believe that one of their members has betrayed them. Mm-hmm. So they take him to a safe house. And because there's people around and they're working essentially like out in the open, look very vulnerable, they can't shoot him. So they strangle him with like a towel over the course of minutes. It takes a long time and it's brutal. And this is a person they've worked closely with and they have to do it. And it's these kind of trade-offs and really hard decisions that make this movie really unlike other Star Wars movies where you really feel the cost in a different way, like the cost of people's morality, their souls, the things they have to do because they believe in this fight. Like, you know, it's not just blasting Star Destroyers from across space. It's like getting up close and shooting a person who risked his life to give you information. These are the decisions that Cassian has to make every day. Yeah, you have to stare the cost right in the face. But when Star Wars first asked people to start thinking about the state of one's soul, they hated it. They hated it! (laughs) Hated it. When we pick up with Jin 13 years later, it's immediately clear that she's been through a lot. Mm-hmm. She's imprisoned, being transported to an imperial labor camp on Wabani. And when she's busted out, she shows that the fight has not left her yet. She doesn't know who these people are that are right. busting out, doesn't know the reasons behind it. She just knows I'm safer on my own. And she tries to make a break for it. And who grabs her by her collars and whips her into the ground. Vicious. K2SO, who's not exactly a people person droid. Congratulations, he says after body slamming her. You are being rescued. Please do not resist. Great voice work from Alan Tudyk. Unbelievable stuff. And resistance, of course, is Jin's very nature. It's how she's survived this long and how she's programmed. The central tenet 
her mother and her father instilled in her all those years ago. Never give up. Kick and claw until you're standing in. They take her to Rebel Alliance headquarters on Yavin 4, known to Star Wars fans everywhere as the site of Death Star 1's eventual destruction. The Battle of Yavin is such a seminal moment in the galaxy's history that it's how we measure time in this world. BBY yep. or ABY before the Battle of Yavin and after the Battle of Yavin. And here we are in year zero. The moment so many other moments lead up to or trace back from. And we're experiencing it through people who, with few exceptions, we did not know before this film. Around the film's release, Gareth Edwards told the New York Times, quote, A new hope is the story of a boy who grows up in a tranquil home and dreams of joining a war. What if we have the story of a girl who grows up in a war and dreams of returning to the tranquility of home? That inversion and that idea is illuminating in more than one respect. It reinforces the paramountcy of perspective, but also the real miracle of Rogue One and of the best fantasy stories, allowing us, the viewer, the reader, however you're consuming a story, to find our hope by putting regular people in the position to do something extraordinary. Jean and Cassian and all of this film's other heroes, they're not Jedi, Mm -hmm. but they're determined to make their mark. I wish none of this had happened, Frodo once said to Gandalf. And the wise wizard replied, so do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. Everyone in Rogue One has to make that choice, whether or not to believe, whether or not to fight, whether or not to try. And if they can, if they can try, then so can we. That is an immensely powerful and precious idea, the kind that the best stories highlight and the kind that we carry with us so long after we put down our books or turn off our TVs. It's a kyber crystal of courage for us hanging around our necks. On Yavin, Jin, using her fake identity, meets the rebel leaders. Davitz Draven. Dick. Davitz Dick Draven. <laughs> Jan Dadana. Barristan, sell me! Getting your What's check up, for dude? your one line in the movie! Also, cool name, Jan Dadana. Great stuff. Mon Mothma, Cassian, and others. Quote, it's a chance for you to make a fresh start, Mon tells her. Now, that sounds like a new hope. Mm-hmm. Cassian asks where her father is and what he's doing. I like to think he's dead, she says. Makes things easier. Pretty brutal response. Yes. yes. But... Her life has been brutal. Yep. And of course, we suspect this whole while that this is a cover. I've never had the luxury of political opinion, she says. The rebels aren't exactly compassionate. They call her girl and press her on her history and say that if she can't help, they'll, quote, put you back where we found you, which, recall, is a prison work camp. Yeah. It's tempting to see your enemies as evil, all of them, Jorah tells Danny in Thrones. But there's good and evil on both sides in every war ever fought. This is an evil, but it's harsh and cold and a yep. reminder that fighting for good doesn't always manifest in goodness. Part of that idea that we uh, spoke of many times and earlier in this season, that when you fight an enemy, you end up taking on a lot of the traits of that enemy. Yes. They present Jin with their mission. Use her to gain an audience with Saw, authenticate Bodhi's story, and stop the construction of the superweapon that her father's building. Their tactic? Leverage. In exchange for Jin's cooperation, Mon says, quote, we'll make sure you go free. And despite the formative lessons of her youth and the ensuing time and Saw's lair, Jin is not inclined to fight at this point in the story. She's been burned too many times. She's out of gas. She's jaded, she's lonely, and she's forgotten what belief even looks like because too many people have let her down. But a little well-timed nod from Star Wars check casher-in-chief Jimmy Smith, (laughs) get your money, you're crushing it, it, helps cement it, and a new fellowship is born. Loyalty and common purpose, they'll bloom organically. 
in time. But for now, it's transactional, purely practical, a shared means to different ends. Our newfound crew bonds as they set off for work. K2SO starts the hard work by telling Jin about his personal history. He's a reprogrammed imperial droid. Fascinating and emblematic here. This was clearly a shrewd and practical move on Cassian's part. Who needs polyuse or faceless man training when your droids already looks like a part of the enemy war machine? It also speaks to choice in nature. Cassian and K2 have a real bond, as we will see. And that stems from K2 finding his true nature because ultimately he defied convention and believed that he could. K2's quite quirky and unaccustomed to censorship, speaking just whatever is on his mind. Consequence and feelings be damned. Jin going to Jeddah? Bad idea. <laughs> I think so. And so does Cassian. But there's something refreshing about his candy. I love it. Cassian soon tells Jin that it's a byproduct of his reprogramming and it plays like a glitch. Why does she get a blaster and I don't? But it's really a reminder of what it's like to be unencumbered. He's not weighed down by the constraints of his programming or even the dictates of social norms. Mm-hmm. He's free, admirable, and infectious. And in a yep. way, even though he's in Cassian's service, he's at this point freer than Cassian himself, who's just a cog in the rebel machine following Draven's orders. Forget what you heard in there. There will be no extraction. You find him, you kill him. Again, remember what we've already seen with Tivik. This isn't a noble order, but one that we already have reason to believe Cassian will carry out. And just the context of Draven giving that order. He didn't want to do it in front of Jin. He wants to keep the circle as tight as possible. As far as we can tell at this point, he's not driven by any kind of social code. He's checking items off of his list, moving toward his goal one blaster shot at a time, and that will eventually change. Trust goes both ways, Jin tells Cassian when convincing him to let her keep the blaster that she found. In uh, to Channel K2, vague and unconvincing ways that she won't reveal. Quote, would you like to know the probability of her using it against you? K2 asks. It's high. But what is trust, ultimately? If not hope and belief that someone else won't let you down, that they won't make you feel like a fool or fill you with regret. We build it with each other over time. But like any structure, any creation... You have to, at some point, be willing to lay down that first brick by choice. You have to tell yourself that it'll be able to hold the weight of everything else that you're about to place on top of it. Jin and Cassian are trying to do that here. When they arrive on Jeddah and we see the Star Destroyer hovering over the temple, we see what a fulcrum this has become for the galactic civil war. Saw's resistance fighters are laying in wait, but the Empire is here, purging the temple of its holy kyber crystals to fuel its superweapon. Cassian lies to Jin about his contact in Saw's base, saying he's, quote, gone missing. Mm -hmm. Sits better than, you know, I assassinated him. I executed (laughs) him after I got what I needed from him. And here we get an overt acknowledgement of today's theme. They're going to find his sister, Cassian says, and give her Jin's name and hope that they get the audience with Saw that they seek. Hope? Jin scoffs? Yeah. Rebellions are built on hope. And that is, of course, one of the central ideas that— holds Star Wars up that makes it something, a story that has stood the test of time. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty riveting to see a film positioned around a protagonist who has to come to that realization, whose initial disposition is to reject that premise cynically. Absolutely. And we start to see why in Genesee, Saw's rebels and the Imperial troopers turn the streets, screaming children in their midst, into an open war zone. There's a violence to this sequence that we rarely see in a Star Wars film, but one that is essential to understanding 
Jin and Cassian's perspective, and the perspective of so many innocents trapped in the crosshairs of the blaster shots and the radius of the yep. bombs. This isn't balletic lightsaber doing. This is something more familiar and therefore all the more horrifying. It kickstarts a different gear for Jin, mm-hmm. and she blazes through the troopers with ease and instinctively fires a blaster shot into an imperial droid giving us one of the many humorous moments in this film. (laughs) Amid the carnage. Did you know that wasn't me? K2 asks when he appears a second later. Wonderful stuff. There are a lot of explosions for two people blending in, he says. These scenes are uh, reminiscent of of another movie that's based in history, The Battle of Algiers, which is an Italian film about the French post-World War II French colonial regime and its efforts to keep hold of its colonial territory. And it's a film that shows kind of the costs of guerrilla warfare and also why it's so effective. It was notably used to kind of get American war leaders accustomed to what guerrilla warfare in Iraq could look like in the early aughts. And again, incredible to see this kind of imagery and themes displayed in a Star Wars movie. Absolutely. There's a irrepressible savagery unfolding, including inside Saw's camp, where Cassian is working his way out of the literal prison in which he's stationed, and the metaphorical one that Chirrut tells him he carries with him wherever he goes. We're going to talk more about Chirrut and Bays later, by the way. Jin reunites with Saw, and we can see how fully one fact has defined Jin's life, for good and bad being Galen Arso's daughter. It's why she ended up with Saw in the first place. It's why Saw abandoned her as people were learning the truth of her identity and preparing to use it against her and, crucially, him. And it's why she's here in this room now, having this conversation. It's what will lead her eventually to the shores of Scarif and her demise, but also her great achievement. But Jin's story is, among other things, certainly, a reminder that while we can't choose our circumstances, we can always choose how we respond to them. You care not about the cause, Saw asks her. The cause? Seriously, she says. The alliance, the rebels, whatever it is you're calling yourselves these days. All it's ever brought me is pain. You can stand to see the imperial flag rain across the galaxy, Saw asks, and she says, it's not a problem if you don't look up. Mm -hmm. Again, an incredible thing to hear a ultimate Star Wars hero voice. We've all felt that way. Willful ignorance is not a trait that we tend to associate with the people we deify and idolize. But again, counterintuitively, that is what makes Jin such an important character and such a winning figure in this saga. She's just a person trying to make it through the day. She's not trying to save the world right now. She's been let down too many times to think about saving anyone but herself. This starts to change when Saw plays her Galen's message. Her entire face, her entire physical disposition changes when she sees and hears her father again. She spent the bulk of her life since fleeing from Imperial Mm -hmm. troops, lying to herself about where he was and what he was doing. But she can't do that after seeing what he's risked and what he's hoping for. Jin, my stardust, I can't imagine what you think of me, he says. And he explains that he's been living a lie. His confession is intercut with scenes of Krennic and Tarkin booting up their Death Star, getting preparing their test, a heart-pounding, tension-raising crescendo of information and impending doom. I made myself indispensable, Galen says, and all the while I laid the groundwork for my revenge. We call it the Death now, Star. <laughs> that gives me a chill. Yeah. Oh my God. There's no better name. <laughs> and the day is coming when it will be unleashed. He reveals his coup de grace. 
While pretending all this time to serve the enemy, he in truth has been working to take down the signature achievement of their reign, embedding a fatal flaw, quote, so small and powerful they will never find it. He capitalized on their hubris and their arrogance, tethering his hope in the entire galaxies to something as small as a postage stamp, mm-hmm. a David buried inside of their Goliath. It's a literalization of the cherished trope, as Sam and Frodo would tell us, anyone, no matter how small, can make a difference in any action and design can too. He tells Jin, quote, so much of my life has been wasted. I try to think of you only in the moments when I'm strong because of the pain of not having you with me, your mother, our family. The pain of that loss is so overwhelming. I risk failing even now. This is a really good performance. It's, yeah, it's great. It's just so hard not to think of you. Think of where you are, my stardust. And where is she? On the site that his creation is about to obliterate. As he reveals the key details, the Death Star shrugs. <sighs> the reactor module, he says, quote, That's the place I've laid my trap. It's well hidden and unstable. One blast to any part of it will destroy the entire station. But in order to realize that revenge, she will need to get the plans to the Death Star in order to locate the reactor. He directs her to the data vault in the Citadel Tower on Scarif. There's a problem on the horizon, K2 says. There's no horizon. The Earth is unfolding, forming, moving toward them. And for Jin, of course... There's never been anything more clearly worth fighting for. Her father has given her purpose here. He's given it to others too. Quote, he said, I can make it right if I was brave enough to listen to what was in my heart, do something about it. Bodhi tells her as they head to Edo. And Jin is thinking that they're going to save Galen. Cassian knowing, of course, that he's been ordered to kill him. Bodhi thinks it's too late. Baze does too. And it's no wonder. They all just watched the city turn to ash. But Jin is alive with hope after seeing the message. That's a hard thing to give to other people, she realizes. Those people didn't see it. They didn't hear their father call them stardust. They didn't get to believe after 15 years of wondering that the person they've loved and worried after was fighting for good the whole time. Cassian, we can tell, wants to believe. Wants to. But he just can't take her word for it. That's not enough. Jin arrives on Edu, intending to find her father and bring him to the Alliance to share his message, but Cassian breaks off to exact his orders. Does he look like a killer? Chira, suspicious, asks Baze after Cassian leaves. No, he has the face of a friend. A good snapshot here about Cassian's character overall. Mm-hmm. He puts forth the image of a person who is nondescript. Perhaps a friend, but certainly not someone you notice. But inside... He's hardened mm-hmm. and ready to do whatever is necessary to achieve his goals. We think he's a killer, but he will eventually wind up being a friend. Now, though, the rebel forces are en route, cut off from Cassian's signal after their crash landing. And so is Krennic, who asks Galen to assemble his engineers. There's a quality here not dissimilar to the opening sequence of Stranger Things season three, mm. when we can see so clearly and so instantly that people doing the work don't actually believe in it. They're doing it because they're afraid. Yes. We can feel the power of hope here in its absence. These people have nothing to hold on to, nothing to turn to to convince them that it'll be okay. Cassian does, because he stops himself from pulling the trigger from his position atop the ridge, only to learn a second later that the Rebel Squadron is inbound, readying to bomb the platform. And as those familiar X-Wing silhouettes descend, Jin runs out and shouts to Galen, Father, she says. And they get to look at each other for a moment before 
all hell breaks loose. Not for the first and not for the last time in the movie. And as Krennic flees, Jin goes to cradle her father. I have so much to tell you, he says. And then he dies. He never gets to tell her any of it. And she can't even sit and mourn for him because the stormtroopers are attacking. They have to go. It is a crushing moment. But also a reminder of how your legacy and impact on other people can live on long beyond your body. She has that last bit of fire that she needs. He told her right before he died that she must destroy the Death Star. And she will. They escape in the stolen shuttle that Bodhi swiped from Edu. The fight that Jin and Cassian have on the ship about lies and intention and culpability has all the lived-in blame and pain of a marriage feud. The yes. Alliance bombs, Jin said, are the ones that killed him. It might as well have been Krennic shot, and a minute later it might have been, but it's all mixed up in each other. Here. Too hard to see the difference between rebels and the Empire when it all nets out in basically the same outcome, death and destruction. What's the difference? What are they fighting for and why? Jin can't stomach Cassian's reply about following orders because it abrogates him of any responsibility. What do you know, he says. We don't all have the luxury of deciding when and where we want to care about something, which is a good response. Mm -hmm. Suddenly the rebellion is real for you. Some of us live it. I've been in this fight since I was six years old. You're not the only one who lost everything. Some of us just decided to do something about Man. it. You can't talk your way around this. I don't have to, he says. And they're both right, Cassian, Great that you can't judge if you haven't had to make those kind of choices before. Jin, that being in the fight isn't an excuse for losing sight of humanity, and that makes the fight worth waging in the first place. And I think another thing that this movie does really well is Everyone here is finally making a decision, a very hard decision, a very expensive decision that will cost them their lives, ultimately, to do, quote, the right thing. And they're doing it not just because of the politics, uh, you know, they, they're, they're anti-trade or they don't agree with the tax policies. They're doing it because they've lost something. It's mm -hmm. extremely personal choice for them to make the right decision. It's incredibly reminiscent of Dumbledore's Remember Cedric speech and not just in a vacuum in the void saying, you know, if you have to make the choice between what's right and what's easy, do the right thing, the hard thing, even though it's hard, but tethering that to that loss and to that bond that you had with someone else. It's extremely hard in this world of total and increasing oppression to say, I'm going to take responsibility for this thing, as small as it may seem. I'm going to do this one thing myself because it doesn't seem like anybody else is willing or able to do it. And I think, and this part of what is so vibrant about this movie to me is these characters are coming to that place where they're saying, okay, forget what's happened before, what any governing body says or what decision of some overarching army military industrial complex decides we now are going to make a stand. Us here. We're going right. to do it. That's right. Return we will after word from sponsors. Binge about Star Wars is presented by State Farm. State Farm agents know that sometimes life throws everything at you at once. Like a fender bender when you're already late. When it comes to auto and home insurance, State Farm agents are there for you. Talk to one of 19,000 State Farm agents via text, over the phone, in person, or using the State Farm app, you don't even need to worry about transmitting from Scarif. Find one today at statefarm.com. Today's show is also brought to you by Star Wars, Jedi Fallen Order, the new action adventure game from Respawn Entertainment, coming November 15th. Jedi Fallen Order is the Star Wars game that you've been waiting for. 
taking place between Star Wars Revenge of the Sith and Star oh. Wars A New Hope. Oh. You play as Cal Kestis, a Jedi Padawan turned fugitive. After narrowly escaping Order 66 and the Jedi Purge, you're on a quest to rebuild the Jedi Order. Will the lightsaber hone iconic force powers and complete your training to become a powerful Jedi, all while staying one step ahead of the Empire? Become a Jedi November 15th in Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order. Available on Xbox One, PS4, and PC. And now back to binge mode. Back on Yavin. As word of the Death Star and its horrors starts to reach them, some of the rebels lose heart. They're having a difficult time doing exactly what you just said. Words like disband and suicide pact surface. And some of them are are more steeled than ever, but some are desperately afraid and some kind of just don't believe Jin at all. They're not willing to lead the bulk of their forces into what might be a trap on the word of a man that they still think is a monster. When Senator Pamlo, a.k.a. Pammy, one of the most vocal dissenters, asks what chance they have against a weapon like this, Jin completes her transformation from detractor to preacher. What chance do we have? The question is, what choice? Run, hide, plead for mercy, scatter your forces. You give way to an enemy this evil with this much power, and you condemn the galaxy to an eternity of submission. The time to fight is now. And she implores them to send the fleet to Scarif. You're asking us to invade an imperial installation based on nothing but hope, Senator Pamlo says disbelievingly. And Jin repeats what Cassian had said to her Mm -hmm. earlier. Rebellions are built on hope. But it's not going to be easy. No. Because one of the only forces in the world as strong as hope is fear. And these people are desperately, terribly afraid. Quote, there is no hope, says the dude dude from Chernobyl. (laughs) There is no hope, says one of the rebel leaders, and Mon Mothma sneaks. The odds are too great. I love that dude, the Chernobyl dude. He's great. They can't offer their support without the entire council's consent. And here, again, is, I think, a really nice distillation of the, I don't want to say strengths and weaknesses, but like pros and cons of democracy versus authoritarianism. Around World War II, there was an actual debate amongst uh, people who followed politics about whether democracy as a system could really survive against authoritarianism, where all decisions are centralized and a leader could easily marshal all the resources needed to follow out and to basically execute a goal, whereas in democracy, there's arguments and there's constantly trade-offs that needed to be made for every decision to happen. In this scene, you understand that while that is extremely messy and really annoying, it's also necessary as part of the process because it builds a consensus that is strong and not just based on the word of one Mm -hmm. person. The rebel alliances we spent decades thinking of as brave and bold fight not only in the face of hopeless odds, but because of those odds. Right. But Jin will not. She has to honor her father's memory. Otherwise, what was the sacrifice for? The idea of a rebellion within the rebellion. Is it once exhilarating and fresh and quintessentially Star Warsian? Never, as Han likes to say, tell them the odds. She wants to fight, Chirrut says. So do I, Bodhi says. We all do. Cassian, in really one of the most heartening moments of the film, he does too. He's there with a small band. Small, yes, but enough to A, give us the red shirts that we need to head into battle or think we need before we realize everyone's going to die. And then B, actually pull off the mission. I believe you, Cassian tells her. And she's made 
a convert out of someone who an hour ago killed his own informant because he'd do whatever was necessary to hold on to the smallest possible kernel of the dream. We've all done terrible things on behalf of the rebellion, he says. Spies, saboteurs, assassins. Everything I did, I did for the rebellion. And every time I walked away from something I wanted to forget, I told myself it was for a cause that I believed in, a cause that was worth it. Without that, we're lost. Everything we've done would have been for nothing. I couldn't face myself if I gave up now. Rebellion isn't always clean. But you have to be able to convince yourself that it's worth it. And if you lose that somewhere else, you have to find it in another place or with another person. That's what's happening here. They board their shuttle, and Bodhi names it Rogue One. May the Force be with us, Jin says. As Mon tells Organa to send for his, quote, friend. Ben? The trusted Jedi currently in hiding, setting up Leia's search for Obi-Wan. Rogue One arrives on Scarif, the site of the Imperial Security Complex. Jin holds her kyber crystal as Bodhi works to smuggle them through the gate with the clearance code. She's tapping into the Force and her family and the power they hold. Cassian and Jin address the men. They have no idea we're coming. They have no reason to expect us, she says. If we can make it to the ground, we'll take the next chance and the next. On and on until we win or the chances are spent. Love it. In Half-Blood Prince, as Harry reflects on the losses and lessons that have defined his life, he thinks it was important, Dumbledore said, to fight and fight again and keep fighting, for only then could evil be kept at bay, though never quite eradicated. New as Jin is to this fight, she knows the truth. You have to try and then try again because then someone else can too. And if you never do, why would they? That's right. an important idea yep. that it's not just about winning this fight per se. It's about inspiring others that they can fight too. That really is the audacity, which we're talking about. Not daring to dream in the first place, but of continuing to as it gets harder and the odds get longer and the losses mount. Knowing that makes it not more futile, but more important than ever. Quote, make 10 men feel like 100, Cassian says. And it's not hard to imagine the crew aboard Rogue One as John and his fellows atop the wall and yep. possibly outnumbered, but sure that even if there's no path to achieving it, they must try. Hold the gate, Grin. The rebel incursion on Scarif quickly and naturally sparks chatter and our timid homies back on Yavin intercept it. Radis is already gone off to join the He's fight. Ready. Incredible. Getting that early seasoning in. Mm. <laughs> and Mon can't help but smile when she hears this. This is what they all want. This is why they're doing this in the first place. The firefight on the ground is fierce and savage taking us from Star Wars's typical aerial theater down into the trenches, down into the sand. But the air raid's coming. The rebels are mobilizing. And C-3PO and R2, there they are for just a second. Can't believe it. But Radis and the rebels amass above the gate, a preview of what's to come in A New Hope above Yavin and in so many other rebel missions to follow. This is a declaration of intent, fueled by the refusal not only to let the enemy win, but the refusal to let the enemy take away your desire to try. Just one problem. Yeah. When the rebel fleet arrives, the Empire can't help but notice, and they will close that gate, which means our Rogue One crew on Scarif are trapped. K2 tells Cassian and Jin that they can transmit the Death Star plans using the super prominent DirecTV-like satellite atop the tower there. Sunday ticket service must be impeccable for the Galactic Empire. They see everything. <laughs> everything. Zone, they all got of those it all. Lamar runs. Yes. But even then, with the shield gate closed, the files, because they are, you know, we're talking like 30, 40 gigs. I don't know what it You're is. You're carrying 50, four decades of cannon. 60 gigs. Yeah, huge. They won't be able to 
pass through the gate with enough bandwidth for the fleet to download them. They have to take down that shield. Cassian conveys this to Bodhi, and Jin hands K2 a gun to defend their position. Your behavior, Janesso, is continually unexpected, he says. And that's what Hope does. Wonderful. For Bodhi, even getting the message to the fleet about busting down the gate means boosting the comm tower signal, and that means flipping a switch, and not, to be clear, in the way that L3 likes. Very different. The battle above and below Scarif, as this is all playing out, is just utterly stunning and mesmerizing. Palm trees swaying, crystal ocean blue and turquoise water glistening, pillars of smoke between it all. It's a beach war movie now. It's like Dunkirk in space. As Jin makes her way through the project codenames, she sees Stardust as a name for one of the files. Her father laid all the breadcrumbs for her. One more son of his enduring love and courage. And a, again, a sign for everyone else, too. Yes. But it's not that difficult. That's fine. Wait, wasn't that what he used to call his kid? Yeah. Should we? The one who ran away? Again, imperial intelligence is a contradiction. Krennic! Contradiction in terms. Krennic! <laughs> Krennic, who we oh saw in flashback scenes would be over Galen's apartment for, for dinner. Yeah, they're for game times. night. <laughs> Couldn't figure out what Stardust was. Really rough. Tough look for my guy, Orson Krennic! <laughs> K2 is holding off a barrage oh of stormtroopers God. as they search, using the blaster Jin gave him with droid-like precision, oh, it man. must be said. It's He's great. taking damage all the while, and so is the deck. Right as they locate the file, power goes out. They will have to physically climb up to get it. It seems impossible, but Kay tells them they can do it. Tells them they have to. Everything comes down to this. Everything comes down to every being in that tower or on that beach or in the sky doing their part. Kay did his as he takes the blast blaster shot his systems can handle. He says one last thing before the lights flicker out behind his eyes. Not a joke, not a barb, but a plate. Climb, he begs them. And then just like a sentient being, yeah. the person that he is, says goodbye. Oh, that's heartbreaking. Bodhi cannot get back to the shuttle to plug in, but Cassian tells him he has to, just like K2 just told Cassian. They are all relying fully on each other. No action that any of them is taking individually matters if the other people don't do their part. Like you were saying earlier, you have to be willing to act when you look around and you don't see that other people are stepping up, but you also have to be able to trust in those who are in it with you. They're tied up in the belief that the person or droid or humanoid next to them is going to follow through mm -hmm. and fight just as hard as they are. Otherwise, it doesn't work. Hope is a shared thing. The X-Wings that originally made it through the gate are falling from the sky now, and Krennic's death troopers are landing in the ocean, their shiny black armor glistening menacingly in the water's reflection. Another one in the images that came yeah. out before the movie. I was just like, holy shit, this is incredible. Jin and Cassian are climbing, 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 and as Krennic approaches, and it's like saving Private Ryan and Mission Impossible all rolled into Star Wars at this point in the film. It is just riveting. With Krennic and his goons knocking Cassian down the shaft, it appears that the Death Troopers do get some a little bit better training in, <laughs> in shooting. Better. They're elite. Yeah. The ion torpedoes disable a Star Destroyer, and Bodhi gets through to Radis at last. This is for you, Galen, he says, right before Rogue One blows up. Galen is like a totem for Bodhi, and 
And Rogue One, in turn, becomes that for others on the beach. They hit the disabled destroyer with a battering ram, which drives the destroyer into another ship and then down into the shield. A really incredible visual sequence. A hulking, lethal tortilla cutting into its dip. And the shield is open. Amazing. All the while, Jin has been climbing, reaching the tower, and sliding in the plans to transmit. But nothing's easy. She has to realign the antenna. And in that time, Krennic arrives. Who are you? He Krennic! <gasps> Who Come are you? On! Jesus fucking Krennic. <laughs> Krennic! You know who I am, she replies. <laughs> Based on actually knowing the end, all available context clues. Jin Urso, <laughs> daughter of Galen and Lyra, you've lost. After all this man is taken away from her and her family and the galaxy, she can still see victory and frame it as such. That is an incredible moment. She tells him about, quote, my father's revenge. There's that phrasing again. And Cassian, somehow alive for now, arrives to shoot Krennic just as the plans go through. Jin did it. Cassian did it. They did it. She did the impossible. It's impossible. Do you think anyone's listening? Cassian asks her as they walk away. I do, she says. Someone's out there. She knows it, but also she has to believe it because that's what faith and hope are. And then, in one of the signature shots in a film really full of them, yes. Death Star emerges from hyperspace and looms <sighs> into Chilling. the sky. Krennic said he lost nothing but time. But of course, Tarkin can't risk it. Mm-hmm. And he sees a perfect opportunity yep. to, one, close a security loophole, mm-hmm. and two, get rid of a really annoying person. Who also is a security loophole. Yes. Because he's bad at his job. As the Death Star blast hits the satellite tower too late and pierces the sea, triggering Scarif's destruction, Radis calls down, Rogue One, may the force be with you. Ugh. This was ultimately a suicide mission for everyone involved, but they knew the risks. They took them willingly because they knew that living was not the point. Making life better for everyone else was. It's an almost inconceivably dark ending for a Star Wars film. But an important one, making yes. us feel and consider the consequences and stakes of war beyond the glow of the lightsaber. I think, you know, one of the, we rarely think about the cost for the Empire. You know, it's like mm-hmm. almost almost a joke how easily stormtroopers go down. And of course, they're faceless and anonymous the way they just like fall over. But when Radis orders up that hammerhead corvette to hit the disabled Star Destroyer into the other one and down, and we see like the Admiral on the on the deck of that thing say, you know, full power, we have to get out of here. That was one, really one of the first times it really hit me how many casualties you are really watching on this film. To, to Sean mm-hmm. Fennessy's point, it's really an incredibly violent film. You know, the, the crew of a Star Destroyer is like tens of thousands. And in a stroke, you're seeing like 80,000 people just evaporate. Great point. And in addition to just the numbers of it, the heft yeah. of it, the volume of it, there's the moment of recognition on the enemy's part. They see what they're dealing with. They see what the foe is willing to do. You know, not everybody's willing to walk into the forest. Only some people are. And now they know that's who they're facing. The rebellion is built, of course, on the backs of legends like Leia and Luke. But also, that's the, the heart of this movie on people like Jin, whose name never made it across the galaxy, who lived in something close to anonymity, but who died not in defeat, but in victory, knowing that hope had won out, not only for her and Cassian, but for all the people who found it because of what they did, because of what they were willing to sacrifice. Your father would have been proud of you, Jen, Cassian says, as they make their way to the beach to rest. 
finally, as the blaze moves toward them. And they wrap their arms around each other, and they turn away, and the image, if you're a Thrones fan, definitely is going to instantly recall for you the poem that Jorah and Tyrion recited about the doom of Valeria. They held each other close and turned their backs upon the end. The hills that split asunder in the black that ate the sky, the flames that shot so high and hot that even dragons burned, would never be the final sights that fell upon their eyes. A fly upon a wall, the waves, the sea wind whipped and churned, the city of a thousand years and all that men had learned. The doom consumed it all alike, and neither of them turned. It is absolutely gutting, but also really beautiful, a testament to what they found in each other and in their purpose. And that purpose spreads. Think of Poe's line. Light that fire. Mm-hmm. And this is a life-sustaining fire. When the transmission makes its way from the rebel ship into the escape pod just out of Vader's reach, more on Vader in a bit, it makes its way where we always knew it was going, where it had to go. Princess Leia's waiting hands. What is it that they've sent us? One of her men asks her. And her reply is the spark that lights not only a rebellion, but an entire Star Wars saga. Hope. Cheer it, Baze. And the Wills. We yes. meet Chirrut and Bays in Jeddah City. By the way, immediately, like, top five all-time Star Wars characters for me. Fabulous. As Cassian and Jin, fresh off a salty farewell with K2SO and a testy exchange with Moss Eisley Cantina's own Panda Baba and the good Dr. Cornelius <laughs> Evazan. Revoke his license immediately. <laughs> you don't want him on your mission career, folks. Make their way towards Saul. Chirrut's words, Echo through the streets. May the force of others be with you. Sensing the kyber in Jin's uh-huh. necklace, he calls her over. Bay's watching carefully from nearby. Jin is confused, wondering how Chirrut, who's clearly blind, knows about her necklace. He asks what she knows of the crystals, and she says her father told her they power Jedi's lightsabers. True, but there's more. The strongest stars have hearts of kyber, he tells her, before Cassian pulls her away. But he leaves an impression on Jin, and... Certainly on us. Yes. And it's not easy to shake. Cassian tells us that he and Baze are guardians of the wills, protectors of the Kyber Temple, also known as the Temple of the Wills. Trude and Baze, we learn elsewhere in the canon, once worked for Saw, but suffered a parting of the ways. And Baze hung up his guardian robes, became a protector of a different sort, an assassin, a fighter. But unlike Baze, who lost his belief amid the Imperial occupation, Trude kept his. The Guardians of the Wills were a religious order that preached being one with the Force. They lived as monks here, as we can see in Jeddah City. And interestingly, they've long, long been intended to enter the story. First, they were in an early draft for A New Hope, and then they made their way into scenes in Revenge of the Sith that ultimately weren't filmed and didn't end up in the film. They were, in George Lucas's mind, originally intended to be something like a narrator, believers in the Force, who observe, they track, they log, and they eventually share this entire story. Move over, narrator R2-D2. You got (laughs) got competition. (laughs) Now, Cassian tells Jin that there's nothing left for the Guardians to protect. Quote, now they're just causing trouble for everybody. Not a very hospitable view of a religious order turned to resistance that stands ultimately for more than just the Force itself, but also for the magnificence of uncompromised belief. That's what Chirrut's character is about. Uncompromisable belief. The Jedi have fallen. They've receded from view. But faith, as we've said before, it's a recurring theme in these stories, it's believing in what you cannot see, what you cannot touch. And for Chirrut, he's certain that there is a guiding hand, a power at 
play, an energy that connects him to his fellows and to a shared purpose. It is an uncommon, enviable kind of certainty that fosters this focus, strive, and also, crucially, compassion for those who can't find that for themselves. And that really is key. Chirrut, unlike many others driven by faith, he doesn't judge. He doesn't deride. He's assured, and he wants that for others, too. He isn't content to just sit by as he watches others suffer, the galaxy suffer. Perhaps the greatest compliment in a galaxy torn asunder by war and greed. He just cares and is willing to put himself at great risk to help other people. Let them pass in peace. Let them pass in peace, he tells the troopers moving forward with his staff, which those who underestimate a mistake for something that he would need help walking with. But sure, it wields it with precision and skill as a potent weapon. The force is with me and I am with the force, he says, walking toward them. A powerful and quite sad statement in a world that has moved past the Jedi. And I fear nothing, for all is as the Force wills it. We can see how Chirrut uses his hearing and other senses to guide him, almost like Stick in Daredevil. He isn't a Force user in the traditional sense, but he is using the Force clearly to sense what is around him. The literal powers of the Force are almost irrelevant next to Chirrut's belief in them. Mm -hmm. Telekinesis and mind tricks are nice, but Chirrut has something stronger than even that. Hope incredible. He's amazing. Is he a Jedi? Cassian asks Baze after watching him dispense with the enemy with ease. There are no Jedi here anymore, Baze says. Only dreamers like this fool. But one of the great miracles of this movie is that Chirrut seems like the least foolish person in the entire story. It's one of the film's great achievements. Not only never making him a joke, but actually elevating him to a role model, this aspirational figure, an inspirational figure. He's never a zealot. And he never, despite Bezos remarks here, comes off as a fool at all to us. He's measured, he's precise, and his certainty is uncommonly rare. The force did protect me, he says. I protected you, Bezos replies impatiently. <laughs> but it's a hard thing, finding something to believe in that fully, and Chirrut has. When they're jailed by Saw's men and Bezos mocks Chirrut for praying for the door to open sure it says it bothers him because he knows it's possible. I love that moment so Quietly much. one of the most incredible moments in the movie, not only a insight into their history and relationship, but a statement on what really hinders us as we advance through our lives, not failing to find something to believe in, but having it and losing it and then seeing what it means to those who still have. On Edu, as Chirrut sets out after Jin, Baze shouts after him for going alone up in the rocks in a storm, a blind man going out into the night in the middle of, a, of inclement weather. Good luck, he wishes him mockingly. I don't need luck, Chirrut says. I have you. He knows he's not alone, and that's an incredible boon. No one can survive in this world without help, Jorah once told Danny. No one. Needing help isn't a sign of weakness. Accepting it is a sign of strength and of a willingness to let purpose grip you. Chirrut loses his light bow at the TIE fighter, doing an incredible amount of damage to the enemy. Love it. On Scarif, later on, Baze says to Jin, good luck, little sister. And it's a testament to the way that the bonds forge in the fire of attempting the seemingly impossible. Chirrut and Baze lead their crew into position with ease and grace. And when the at-at comes, this is a great moment when we get the AT-ATs, it's chaos. The death troopers come. It's somehow worse. But 
Someone's got to get to that master switch. It will evolve been for naught, and Trout knows it. And so he begins to walk right into the blaster shots, right into the crosshairs. And he chants to himself as he goes, I am one with the Force, and the Force is with me, over and over and over as Baze is screaming behind him. And he makes it to the switch and turns it on, allowing the rest of the, um, the mission to be possible, giving everyone else still fighting a chance. And his unbreakable, unshakable trust in the Force guided him, shielded him. A little bit of John during the Battle of the Bastards mm-hmm. there. And when the ensuing explosion mortally wounds him and Baze cradles him, Drew tells him that it's okay because for him it really actually is. He died fighting for what he believed in. And he never lost faith that people could band together to do good, important things. That whether or not the Jedi roamed the temple anymore or lightsabers flash through the air, the Force could still unite and guide. Look for the Force, he tells Baze, and you will always find me. Very sad moment. The Force is with me, Baze tells him. And this is someone who did not think this and did not want to say it, but the belief has been brought up in him by this person who he loves and admires. And I am one with the Force. It's really, really beautiful. And Baze, seeing the flames shoot up in the distance from Rogue One, himself now charges into battle, taking out as many troopers as he can with his MWC-35C. And he parrots Shrewd's chant about the Force. For him, being one with the Force now means being one with Shrewd. And as he sees the grenade in the dead trooper's hand about to explode and knows what it means, he doesn't look for a way out. He looks at Shrewd, ready to face death, ready to show others what his dear friend just showed him. How about a little more on Bodhi and a little bit more on... Our good friend Saw Guerrero. Bodhi. Reception! Bodhi enters our story in the flesh on the moon of Jeddah in the holy Jeddah city. Site of the temple of the Kyber, a sacred site, you said, for the Jedi religion. It's also where Saw Guerrero and his partisans have taken up residence, presenting us with a stark contrast in disposition, ideals, and tactics. Saw is a rebel. But his approach has, over the years, grown so severe that Both sides view him as an extremist, even a terrorist. His fight isn't fueled by hope. It's fueled by vengeance, rage over what the galaxy has become. And these things taint and corrupt his motives, just ask Anakin. We see those forces guide him on Jeddah, the site so sacred to the Jedi that reflects so many of the ideals sacred to the followers of the Church of the Force, working for the return of the Jedi in the pursuit of balance. In Revenge of the Sith, Obi tells Anakin, your anger and lust for power have already done that. You have allowed this dark lord to twist your mind until now. Until now, you've become the very thing you swore to destroy. Important lesson here. Saw isn't serving Palpatine or any other dark lord, but in trying to undo him in the particular way that he does by ambushing imperial convoys in the middle of a crowded street as civilians, children walk around, mm-hmm. it's an important lesson. He's isn't serving Palpatine or any other dark lord, but he has begun to mirror him. Mm-hmm. You either die your hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain, Harvey Dent says in The Dark Knight. And classic. That classic idea in superhero and fantasy stories alike. What ultimately is the antidote to that? Not a quick death, surely, but hope, the kind that clarifies and injects meaning and unites rather than divides. When Cassian and Mon and the others asked Jin to lead them to Saw, they described him almost like a bomb, this thing lying in wait, the seconds ticking away until everything was bound to blow up. And as Mon said, quote, his militancy has caused the Alliance a great many problems. But they need him. And need makes bedfellows of those who ultimately would rather not be. And to be fair, who would want to be in bed with this person? He greets Bodhi and us with his now trademark line, lies, deceptions. 
Saul has fought his share of battles, but the result is that he now sees ghosts and foes in every bend and shadow, and that manifests here with Bodhi and tragedy. Think of what it took for Bodhi to defect and transport Galen's message. It took Galen urging him and supporting him, yes, of course. And it took courage to work his way through the galactic lines, yes. But more than anything else, it took hope, the belief that there was a reason for him to take the risk that something good and fundamentally impactful could come of it, that there would be someone waiting for him on the other end, ready to receive him and find common cause. And that is immediately jeopardized here by Saw and his minions in a way that not only compromises Bodhi's mission, but his and our capacity to believe in our fellows and the value in taking a risk for the common good. Saw is a terrifying person to behold, part man, part machine, held together by technology and hatred of the enemy. But none of those parts, organic or otherwise, have him inclined to believe Bodhi. I gave it to them. They didn't find it, Bodhi says, almost desperate for credit in trying to say, hey, listen, I came here willingly. I'm giving you all the information I have. They didn't take it from me. I'm giving it up. If Saw doesn't buy it, Bodhi's just another enemy combatant who got caught moving illicit merchandise. If he does, he's a brave warrior who risked it all to stand up for the truth. Ultimately, Bodhi's appeal to Saw's history with Galen doesn't work. Saw hits the, quote, oxygen from his mask, and the brief hint of Vader-esque breath is chilling enough to remind us of how fleeting hope can be if it isn't tended and nurtured. Saw should be the subject of one of these new vape pen, anti-vape pen ads. The ensuing words, Pogolet! 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 Are as we will <laughs> soon see the stuff of nightmare and more on board below. But here, Saw's motivations are really the only thing that matter. Pogolet can feel your thoughts. No lie is safe. <laughs> what have you really brought me? Cargo pilot? Borgullet will know the truth. Just an incredible line. Yeah. Borgullet will know the truth. Ah, but what does Borgullet take other than thoughts? Strength of mind, and with it, the strength to fight. When Cassian finds Bodhi, he can barely speak, but hearing Galen's name centers him and restores his purpose and a sense of self. Borgullet destroys, but Bodhi's mission is so central to who he is and what he now believes that the words, just hearing Galen Urso, unlocks his full sense of self again. Saw himself still has strength, but it's shrouded and madness, yes. damage and trauma. It's a trap, isn't it? He asks Shin. We'll talk more about Saw later in our run during our Clone Wars and Rebels chats, but he can no longer recognize friend from foe, even in the form of a child that he helped raise. He's a reminder of what it looks like when hope fades and all that's left in its place is suspicion and misery. Saw, for reasons that defy comprehension, decides not to flee with Cassian and Shin. <laughs> I will run no longer. Why? He says, apparently intending to fight. Ra yeah, like why? Why? Again, shades of Val. But he has a nice pep talk for them as they flee. Save the rebellion. Save the dream. An interesting statement from a person who appears to have really given up the dream in yeah, favor of something of much more curdled. What about Krennic's dream? What about Vader? <laughs> And the Empire. The enemy has hope too, or some version of it at least. We've obviously touched on most of Krennic's actions in the film already throughout the course of the pod, but not all of his scenes in the film intersect with our heroes. So what about his time with his fellow baddies? His first interaction with Tarkin in the shadow of the Death Star is absolutely chill-inducing. Apparently, you've lost a rather talkative cargo pilot, Tarkin says, with the, you know, that I'm not mad, I'm just disappointed, but also I intend to kill you later tone that we've all been on the receiving end of before. 
What specifically is he afraid of, though? The Senate finding out about the Death Star and winning legions to their cause. And this is illuminating. It means that they know that the Death Star is in some ways too much, even for them. Not something that even those currently operating from a position of fear-stoked obedience will be able to tolerate. As mentioned above, in The Last Jedi, Poe says, we are the spark that'll light the fire that'll burn the First Order down. And Tarkin, to his credit, knows here that the Death Star reveal will be the spark for their enemy, the spark that they need to build the fire that the masses then huddle around to try to take down the Emperor. He can't have it, at least not yet, but yet just got moved up on them because Bodhi's escape has made the Emperor anxious. You have made time an ally of the rebellion, Tarkin says, and he's given the enemy hope that they now need to squash with their test. That test plays out in tragic fashion on Jeddah. I thought it prudent to save you from any potential embarrassment, Tarkin says, Savage. dunking on Krennic Savage as dunk. they prepare to test the Death Star on Jeddah and make their report to the Emperor. Krennic's response to the test is euphoric. Oh, it's beautiful. And it's certainly awe-inspiring and certainly terrible and clarifying. Tarkin is very begrudgingly impressed with Director Krennic's little toy. So impressed, in fact, that he decides to take it for his own. We cannot stand here amidst my achievement, Krennic says in a line that coheres with canon in literally no respect. Not yours! <laughs> no respect. Krennic has a bit of Anakin in him. He doesn't want to get passed up from Roshan, and he needs his bosses to tell him how great he is, literally all the time. Or his little hope ember goes out. Glad you mentioned Anakin, because the relish with which Krennic tells Galen that he blasted Jedha, the last reminder of the Jedi, gone is matched only by the pleading fear with which he greets Darth at Fortress Vader on Mustafar. For more on Fortress Vader, check out our Revenge of the Sith pod or the Ringer YouTube channel. <laughs> the shadow that Vader casts as he walks in to meet Krennic after we see him in the back of the tank. The shadow is massive, and that is no accident. That is the shadow, specifically, of Vader in the original trilogies of A New Hope, the shadow against which Rogue One will be measured and has to live up to. And somehow, the film doesn't cower in its wake. Vader tells Krennic that the Senate has been told the Jedi was destroyed in a mining disaster. Weird cover, but okay. They'll need to keep the Death Star secret for now, both to maintain the element of surprise and, of course, to maintain canon continuity. So I'm still in command, Krennic asks so needily. And then Vader force chokes him into submission. Be careful. <laughs> Be careful not to choke on your aspirations, director. Iconic moment from Vader. By the way, there's a lot of talk about the film about how he sounds different in this movie, clearly speaking he had with just a different come out cadence. Of, he had just come out of the back, though. It's true. He was interrupted. Krennic's rival and Scarif to search for all of Galen's old communication in order to see whom he disclosed the secrets to coincides of course, with Rogue One's squadron's first round of explosives detonating. Deploy the garrison, he shouts in rage. And his pursuit of Jin ultimately fails, but the thing that Krennic sees isn't a blaster shot heading his way. It's the hulking mass of the Death Star rising in the sky above him, totally and utterly indiscriminate, ready to annihilate him and his base and all of his ambition along with his foe. As Vader's men tell him that the rebel flagship has received the transmission from the surface, Vader prepares to board. The sound of his breathing reaches the fleeing soldiers before the sight of him. It is a spine-tingling moment near the end of the movie. And then, 
Topping that somehow, the lightsaber turns on, bathing the chamber in red. It is an incredible moment, chilling and fierce. And the ensuing display of Anakin's ability is harrowing, as is Vader's ruthlessness. One of the men manages to sneak that transmission file through a crack in the jammed door, getting it onto the escape shuttle just in front of Vader's pursuit. On to a new hope. Jason? Yes. The producer says you're a friend. I will not kill you. Well, thanks. But if I wanted to, I'd use my planet killer or my lightsaber. And to build in power either, I'd need to know all about the majesty of Kyber. Really sounds like Kyber, doesn't Kyber! it? <laughs> not even a crystal. So please gather the Padawan learners. Head to the Jedi Temple. Teach us everything we need to know about Kyber crystals, an essential part of Star Wars ah. lore. Uh, the mysterious Kyber crystals to the Imperial military, this rare substance, simply a source of energy, which, when refined, could power a weapon that could, you know, just destroy a world. To the Jedi, as well as other cultures throughout the galaxy, the Kyber is something much more. <laughs> Kyber's special properties are due to its attunement with the Force, and it is found in only a few places across the galaxy. Of these, the two most notable were the winter planet Ilum, located beyond the Outer Rim in the Unknown Regions, and the desert moon Jedha, once of the Middle Rim. R.I.P. Jedha. <sighs> no! <laughs> the Kyber Crystal Caves of Ilum are a fascinating example of how important Kyber is to Jedi history and culture, and not just because they power their lightsabers. Much of what we know of Ilum comes from Season 5 of The Clone Wars. For thousands of years, Younglings, at the point in their training when they are ready to build their lightsaber, travel to Ilum to undertake the perilous ritual known as the Gathering. There is no place more sacred to the Jedi, Ahsoka Tano, Anakin Skywalker's Padawan, tells her young charges as they prepare to travel to Ilum in Episode 6 of Season 5 of The Clone Wars. The first trial they face is to unlock the entrance to the caves, a feat that can only be accomplished by using their combined force abilities. And inside is an ancient temple where Master Yoda tells them that they are each to harvest the kyber crystal, which will become the heart of their respective lightsabers. How does a kyber power the weapon? That much is hazy, but as Yoda explains in the way only he can, focuses the force from the Jedi, it does. Helpful. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for clearing that up, Yoda. Ahsoka is surely Jedi have been doing for generations upon generations, then explains the ritual to the younglings. The young Jedi helping each other as much as possible, must find within the caves their personal kyber crystal. As soon as they locate their crystal, they should immediately exit the cave. Daylight is fleeting on Ilum. When the doorway to the cave freezes over, anyone still within will be trapped for a period of, oh, just 19 days. Mm. Now, in a cave full of ice crystals that look like kyber and also formations of kyber that are kyber, how are these young Jedi supposed to find the one crystal that belongs to them? Now, remember, when we talked about midichlorians in the Phantom Menace episode. How could I forget? How could anyone? Midichlorians, the microorganisms which live in a Jedi's body and communicate with the Force, allowing that person to use the Force, are sentient. Mm -hmm. Kyber crystals, as something like the Force-made substance, is sentient as well. And it is sometimes called the living crystal. 
a youngling's crystal then will call to its owner. And that youngling should just know which of the many, many, many formations of Kyber belong to them. Left to their own devices, the younglings in this episode, Petro, Biff, Gunji, Gnodi, Zat, and Katuni, RIP to them after Anakin waded through them with his lightsaber, <laughs> let pure intuition guide them to their respective goals. Once found that Kyber can only be gained after the respective initiate passes a test of character and intellect tailored specifically by the Kyber for them. Petro and Katuni, a human and a Thalothian, see their crystal shining brightly against the larger crystal formations, but Petro is arrogant. And he is eager to leave his fellows competing for second place. And he discovers as soon as he leaves the cave that the crystal he has gathered is merely ice. And he has to go back and learn the importance of selflessness and helping others. Katuni, lacking confidence, has to make a perilous climb to reach hers. Gunji, a Wookiee, very rare, mm-hmm. by the way, for a Jedi yeah. to be a Wookiee, is drawn to his crystal song. This beautiful little moment. <laughs> But he's an impetuous creature, and he has to learn patience because the crystal is on an island surrounded by water, which he has to let freeze before he can make his attempt. Biff, a timid Ithorian, sees his glittering from within the gaping mouth of an ice formation in the shape of a terrifying creature. He said, conquer his own fears in order to gather it. Gnodi, an easily frustrated Rodian, loudly complains that she hasn't seen even a single kyber and then immediately falls into a cave filled as if festooned with Christmas lights with countless crystals, which she then has to listen to her own intuitions to decide which one is which. Zat, a tech-savvy Nautilin, ends up smashing his scanner because it's totally useless to him, leading him to trust his own senses to reveal his crystal to him. Each challenge, when faced honestly, reveals something elemental about the initiate to which the kyber is attuned. Once the crystals are attained, the younglings are taken to meet Huyang, an ancient architect droid based out of the starship Crucible, who guides them through the process of building their lightsaber. Huyang has been at this for thousands of generations and claims to have a record in his memory banks of every lightsaber ever made and the Jedi who fashioned them. Oh, curious, curious. Sorry, sir, but what's curious? Does this sound familiar? We'll get to that in a second. In order for the lightsaber to work, (laughs) the force within each kyber crystal must be awakened. And since each kyber is linked to the being who found it, each lightsaber is different right down to the materials which it is made out of. For instance, Gunji, the Wookiee, closes his eyes and feels that only a saber with a wooden grip would be correct for him. And presto, Yang muttering tubes. Ah, where would I find wood? (laughs) From the Brylock tree out here in space. Searches through his numerous drawers (laughs) and produces a grip made from the Brylock tree, which is as strong as metal. Watching this scene from season five, episode seven, a test of strength, one is struck by how much a lightsaber looks like a wand, guys. Now, if you're thinking, hmm, young students training to use their mystical powers who are then chosen by their instruments. Does that sound like another fantasy story that everybody loves? Could it be very similar to Harry Potter? Yes, indeed, it does sound very similar to that. And you know what? You're not the only one who's noticed the similarities. The Kaiba crystal chooses the Jedi. It is not always clear why. Not always clear why. <laughs> I love it. I love it too. Younglings having consulted a diagram about what a lightsaber should look like, then assemble their saber eyes closed. Using the force, their instincts guided by the kyber and the force 
and their force intuition selecting the components which surround the crystal. Kybers are naturally attuned to the light side of the force and generally produce either a blue or green colored saber with occasional yellow and very, very rarely purple. Hello, Mace. Depending on the specific harmony created between the wielder and the crystal or if Samuel L. Jackson simply wants to be able to find himself (laughs) on on screen. screen. (laughs) Such a flex. I love it. Now, in order for a dark sider to build a lightsaber, the will of the kyber must be broken in order to be shifted from the light side using the raw power of the dark side. Kyber treated in this fashion is, in a sense, wounded and thus, as if bleeding, will produce a red sword. Though the laser is no less powerful, clearly, as we've seen numerous examples of which from Darth Vader. Kyber crystals, which have been broken and dominated by a dark sider, can also be healed, as Ahsoka Tano does in the novel Ahsoka, creating dual white lightsabers from a pair of crystals, which she purifies. Now, after the fall of the Jedi, the Empire raided all the known sources of Kyber in order to power its super weapons, the Death Star 1 and 2. This included, unfortunately, the Caves of Ilum, which were brutally stripped leading to the destruction of the ancient Jedi Temple, which had existed basically since the dawn of the Jedi. And, of course, the holy temples in Jeddah City, as we saw in Rogue One, and the ice planet, which, once hollowed out, eventually became Starkiller Base. In this, the Empire did more than just exploit a resource. They destroyed an ancient way of life central to an ancient culture. Fuck those guys. It's really sad. Kyber crystals are so cool, man. Love it. Mal, hmm. make 10 men feel like 100. Ready yet? Make eight nuggets feel like 100. Let's roll like BB-8 through eight of our favorite insights and observations from this film, lightning round style. You go first. Number one, rest in power, Jetta City. But what do we know about the holy place? from before its untimely Mm. demise. According to Gareth Edwards in an interview with Collider, the planet gained importance eons earlier when a meteor collision, quote, created the kyber crystals at the center of that crater of impact. Edwards explains that in the establishing shot of the planet, you can actually see a kind of circular rock formation that makes out the geography of the city and which reflects the meteor's impact. And over the centuries thereafter, because Jetta City proved important for the Jedi due to its kyber concentration... It gained immense cultural importance as a religious center, too. Edwards told EW in an interview, quote, it's a place where people who believe in the Force would go on a pilgrimage. That's awesome. And if that idea sounds familiar to we Earthlings, well, Edwards agrees. He told comicbook.com, quote, for a thousand generations, the Jedi were these leaders of the spiritual belief system. So there's got to be the equivalent of Mecca and Jerusalem in the Star Wars world. Awesome. Number two. One of the men responsible for destroying that cultural and religious center was Orson Krennic. Your favorite. Krennic! <laughs> Born 51 years before the Battle of Yavin on the mid-rim planet Lexrel, Krennic was a personable and ambitious child. Indeed. What happened? <laughs> The Rogue One Ultimate Visual Guide explains that Krennic was an architecture prodigy, accepted to the Brantal Futures Program, where he met and befriended none other than Galen Erso. We've all got that one dick friend. (laughs) Years later, in the midst of the Clone Wars, Krennic! Now a prestigious and influential government bureaucrat arranged for a rescue of Galen from imprisonment by the Separatists, 
which helped, at least for a time, sway Galen to Krennic's cause. Mm. But the most fascinating factoid about Orson Krennic is what almost happened in the creation of his character. Screenwriter Gary Whitta told EW that in an initial draft of the story, Krennic found shelter from the Death Star blast on Scarif and survived, barely. He survived the, okay. Before being (laughs) rescued by Imperial troops, or so he thought. He survived the blast and they pulled him up and brought him to the Star Destroyer to report to Vader. Whitta said, he's all beat up. His cape's all torn up and stuff and he thinks he's survived. And Vader kills him for his failure. Tough stuff, as always, for Krennic. <laughs> I honestly would have loved to see that. Every, every <laughs> road for Krennic leads to bad stuff. Alas, the writers couldn't figure out a way Krennic could conceivably have survived yeah. the planet's complete total and complete destruction. <laughs> Hit yeah. in a fridge. So he had to make do with dying atop the tower platform. Somehow more fitting in a way. Number three, Krennic, listen, at the end of the day, couldn't have picked a nicer place to die. So true. As Jason outlined on a recent edition of Ask the Underscore, where he explained why he'd want to live in Scarif, despite it not existing. Scarif is a beautiful outer rim planet. I love it. Full of clear oceans, volcanic islands dotting the surface, with a dense metal mantle beneath. There's just one problem, other than, again, it not existing anymore. As the planet's official Star Wars databank entry notes, quote, the planet Scarif would be a beautiful tropical paradise. If not for the presence of a major imperial military installation, I would like the record to state that was also my note when Jason (laughs) said he wanted to live here. I would live on the other side of it. (laughs) Scarif plays a whole bunch of roles for the Empire at the time of this story. It's a security base, a data archive, and a construction center all in one, with its metallic core particularly useful in providing raw, easily accessible materials for starship construction. Moreover, there's a reason that Scarif seems so unlike all the other planets we've come to know throughout the movie franchise. It was designed intentionally to fill a niche. Edwards explained in a press junket that the European theater of World War II was such a great influence on the Star Wars story, as you've heard us talk about throughout today's podcast, that he wanted to add an element of Pacific theater as well. Quote, you're running out of planet ideas. You've got your desert planet, your ice planet. This idea of a tropical island-like look felt like paradise and was a really good contrast to A New Hope. The planet's name is a bit less inspired, however. As Edwards said later in a South by Southwest speech, the name Scarif came... This is real Sifo-Dyas shit here. Shades of sifo <laughs> Came from a misspelling of his own name, Gareth, on a coffee cup. No word on whether that stroke of unintentional creation came from the same coffee chain that warmed the throats of Delicious. Winterfell's fighters after the battle against the Army of the Dead. And I'll tell you, the lines at Starbucks in Winterfell <laughs> during the siege of Winterfell, unbelievable. Nobody has the app. It's just incredible. It doesn't matter if you have the app. Because there's so many dudes being like, I need coffee. Crazy, crazy, crazy lines. 10,000 men were stabbed to death in the lines. Number four. Before we leave Scarif behind for good, one last note about the planet data files. As Jin reads out the list of projects before finding the correct one named Stardust, one that she passes over without a second thought is labeled hyperspace tracking. Some 30 years later in Star Wars time, but one year later in real time, the Easter egg hatches. Boy, does it. In The Last Jedi, when General Hux, Hux. a non-breathing fuck stick that won't quit, (laughs) quit. and the First Order are able to track the Resistance fleet through hyperspace. Unbelievable. (laughs) What? 
now we're left to wonder whether those projects, some of which have much cooler names than hyperspace tracking, might come into play too. Uh-huh. Mark Omega? War Mantle? Black Saber? Hell yeah. I know you're ready for Black Saber. Number five. Here's another perfect little Easter egg. During the climactic battle, when the red and gold leaders and teams are checking in over their radios, some of those lines and visuals were actually never before seen footage originally filmed four decades prior for the Battle of Yavin and A New Hope. Incredible. Edwards told the Radio Times that they made this discovery while touring the Star Wars archives at Skywalker Ranch. And with a few dialogue tweaks and the magic of digital effects, this new, utterly modern movie was able to seamlessly splice in bits from long ago. Incredible. Very uh, much a a meta look into how this movie stitches together Star Wars canon there. It's wonderful. Number six. Yeah. We talked earlier about the resurrection face tech. One classic character for whom Rogue One didn't need the tech, however, was Mon Mothma, the rebel pioneer and leader who first appeared in in the Star Wars universe in Return of the Jedi. Many Bothans died with this information. Mon Mothma was a senator from the core world planet of Chandrilla, who often sided with Padme Amidala and Bail Organa in the Clone Wars debates. And soon, into the start of the Imperial era, she fled to Coruscant after publicly blaming the Emperor for perpetrating violence against his own Citizens! Uh-huh. Over the ensuing decade, she and old ally Organa oversaw the delicate construction of a rebellion organization while she also helped tutor Organa's young adopted daughter, Leia. Mm. Behind the scenes, actress Caroline Blackiston played Mothma in Return of the Jedi in 1983, and Genevieve O'Reilly, who looks strikingly similar to Blackiston, was supposed to portray Mothma in Revenge of the Sith in 2005 as Lucas initially wrote a scene that showed her starting to form a rebellion. That scene was cut. But O'Reilly received a reprieve more than a decade later when she was cast again in the role for Rogue One. So the answer to unnerving de-aging tech apparently is just to find a very similar looking lookalike. Alas, it sounds easier said than done in most cases. Yeah, try to find a De Niro, okay? Number seven, what's up with Borg Gullet? Borg Gullet! Sagarer proudly boasts, as we've discussed, that his dear boar will, quote, know the truth. Poor Gullet will know the truth. (laughs) (laughs) But do we know the truth about our guy BG? First, he's a Myron, tentacled, blob-like creature from the planet Myris. Perhaps surprisingly, given their association with mind reading, these creatures are not actually categorized as sentient beings, but they can read thoughts that other creatures have, and they can also erase memories. The tentacles, their signature tentacles, are there for wrapping around the head, penetrating the brain, getting all those good thoughts. The experience of having one's mind read by this creature, also called a boar, could leave one unhinged and damaged, as we heard and saw in the film. But that, of course, was not a concern of the Empire. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> Didn't really think about that. Kept them on ice and defrosted so them as needed. Defrost the Borgullet. <laughs> <laughs> to use as interrogation and torture devices. Apparently, Vader, too busy to go around reading minds for everybody who needed some intel. And the Imperial officers clearly never learn their legitimacy. But as we know from Saw's partisans' reliance on the purple-skinned Borgullet, these creatures are not exclusively deployed by the Empire, as knowledge was, of course, a powerful incentive for all sides, all parties. 
In The Art of Rogue One, a Star Wars story, writer Chris Weitz explained that Borg Gullet can parse emotions as well as thoughts, called him an empath, much like our girl Queenie. Hello. (laughs) The Borg Gullet that we see in the movie is both a life-size puppet that more than a dozen puppeteers had to operate and also some CGI. Number eight. We haven't seen the last of Cassian Andor, which might sound odd given that he is blown up with everybody else on Scarif at the Mm -hmm. end of the movie. Mm -hmm. But one of the Disney Plus Star Wars shows that's already been announced is a currently entitled project focusing on Cassian's work as a spy for the Rebellion prior to the events depicted in Rogue One. Diego Luna is set to reprise the title role. Yes! Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Yes! And delightfully, the icon... Alan Tudyk, where are my Firefly hides at? Right fucking here. Right here. Alan Tudyk will once again voice K2SO and Rogue One's Tony Gilroy will reportedly join showrunner Stephen Schiff's team to write the pilot and direct the occasional episode. Given other recent reports that a solo spinoff could at Disney Plus as well, it appears that Disney is looking for ways to make the characters and worlds of the anthology films live on beyond their two-hour movies. Cassian's show described as a spy thriller and apparently set to focus on Cassian's work as a captain in the Alliance to restore the Republic's intelligence branch it appears to be a savvy way to introduce some tonal variance into the offerings while also allowing us to learn more about the character who won over many despite a very brief time on our screens. I love it. He's just like Give a us more. charming, great-looking dude. I'll be leading into every episode of the Cassian show by rewatching E2 Mama Tambien. <laughs> uh, adult content warning for E2 Mama Tambien. Indeed. I will be leading into uh, every episode of the Cassian Andor show by watching <laughs> by watching Diego Luna's clip of him saying how he wants, wants to, to touch, touch Java. Java. Yeah. Yeah. I want to touch Java. Incredible. It's like so <laughs> charming. It's wonderful. Great stuff. Java. <laughs> Jason. Yeah. Congratulations. You are being rescued. Please do not resist. Our winner did, though. Every episode of our movie discussions, we're going to honor the character who rallied the troops, advanced the cause, even if it wasn't always obvious how That's that right. was happening. And today... The winner of our Medal of Bravery is... Galen Erso. Now, this, we admit, might seem <laughs> a odd pick, yeah. given that his wife is murdered in front of his eyes. He is taken captive and forced to work on the Death Star project. Tough. He loses contact with his daughter, Jin. On and on and on. And also... He does die in this movie, and his daughter, whom he worked so hard to protect, also dies. Yeah. But speaking of his daughter, when we initially were debating whether to make Jin our winner, Cram's reply was, Jin is incinerated in a fireball. I mean, (laughs) yeah, but she accomplished a very important mission. I agree. You know, I'm just making sure that the people who like to go on the Facebook group and say that Cram is a Death Eater continue (laughs) to have new fodder to work with. (laughs) Think of what Galen achieved while he was alive. Did he build the Death Star? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Did the Death Star kill billions of people? Scores of people. They would have built this without him. That's right. Even though, obviously, a lot of the premise of this hinges on how they need him to complete it, they would have found a way. By betraying his mission and embedding himself during his forceful imprisonment, he introduced the fatal flaw into the Death Star's reactor module, which facilitated its destruction and allowed the rebellion to challenge and eventually thwart the Empire. Now, the actual engineering details are a marvel, but the spycraft deserves some attention, too. 
Galen managed to record a secret hologram for his daughter and Sagarur, knowing that without sheltering the truth of his actions with another person, his efforts would be for naught. And he convinced Bodhi Rook to defect and carry his message, uh-huh. showing his power of persuasion in addition to his intellect and cunning. What a chance he took in trusting Bodhi. Absolutely. I mean, he hadn't watched the night of yet, apparently. Great series. <laughs> Galen isn't leading from the front lines in quite so visible fashion right. like Jin or Cassian or many others, but his actions are almost equally or more powerful in that way because they remind us that heroism can take so many different forms and that the refusal to give up on a dream or a goal, whatever it might be, that refusal specifically can be the thing that powers you through even in the bleakest of times and circumstances. Rogue One is also the movie that's essentially built around the question that emanates from A New Hope. Why did the reactor flaw exist in the first place? And the answer to that question is Galen Erso. So he's a central character here, even without the screen time to match. Yeah, and it's solving this mystery that we've had for so long. While Galen isn't in any of the movies beyond Rogue One, his legacy, as illuminated in this film, irrefutably becomes one of the seminal inflection points and template setters for the entire series because the destruction of either a Death Star or a Death Star-like weapon, such as Starkiller Base, is a recurring trope in the Star Wars franchise, which means that Galen's subterfuge not only saved lives— but establish an elemental Star Wars blueprint. Yes. Shouts to Galen. Well, friends, be careful not to choke on this podcast. Just like we keep telling Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher, we hope that you had as much fun as we did today, that you're as excited as we are to hop back into the speeder, continue to explore the galaxy, and that you'll join us again next time for our first deep dive into The Mandalorian, episode one. Yeah! Until then, remember, we are one with the binge. And the binge is with us. Saw, do you want to go to the movies after this? There's a couple things. Oh, you're trying to lure me into a trap, huh? I see. Lies! What's waiting for me there? The Empire? Stormtroopers? No, that's fine. All right. I'm going to order some uh, stuff on Postmates later. What do you, th- are you think? You're trying to poison me, huh? No. What is this food? Huh? Nice. Exception. <laughs>